From the north, citizens of the Matrix, welcome. Imagine, if you will, an existence consisting solely of a sleeping mind. Then, at some point, this mind awakens to itself and eventually realizes the loneliness of its ubiquitous singularity. Let's say it then initiates a process to partition itself so that it can behold differences, multiplicity, divergence, and for a brief cosmic moment, experience diversity of life and perhaps forget its loneliness. When this omnipresent mind experiences through the artificial filters it has generated, that part of it is disconnected from the source experience as a whole and now perceives aspects of existence from within as a part of the creation and not as a creator. This would be akin to your mind being fully immersed into a futuristic, high-tech, matrix-like 3D video game, oblivious that your true identity is outside of it and that this artificial experience is just momentarily. Now, let's say, the part of the mind which is quote-unquote trapped in the artificial world, created to generate new and unique experiences not possible as a total entity, let's say this part of it repeats the pattern, which is not strange, seeing as it's the same being only in a new setting. And so this sub-part of the great mind, this temporarily splintered consciousness, like some kind of demiurge, creates yet a lower-level world to immerse parts of itself into, also resulting in oblivion of its source, and in accordance with the holographic principle of existence, as above, so below, this process is repeated innumerable times. And for every layer, the new world is different, and a microcosm within a greater cosmos, perhaps all the way down, to where we humans wake up on Earth. Welcome to the simulation model, or at least my spin of it, as it's not one unilateral dogmatic coherent theory yet, but a new paradigm emerging gradually everywhere and sweeping up new minds that learn about it. The nitty-gritty details are still being worked out, and at the level it's at now is fun because it's open and still receptible to all sorts of original inputs and fresh ideas, as the parallels become more and more obvious the more you think about it, the more you can bake into it known facts from our world. And this is the telltale sign of a theory where existing data points not only are easily integrated into the new model, but even is confirmed by it and confirms it further. So yes, I call it a theory, not merely a hypothesis. At least that's where it's heading now that there's many interesting scientific experiments that can be done, and indeed has been done in the past, even before the model was incepted, to substantiate it. And so, we cannot avoid it as a part of our philosophical series, as it fits hand in glove with the more ancient versions of it. The main difference being we're using descriptors 
from our contemporary technology and virtual reality rather than the old magic and mythic languages. But it's the same ideas, only now even dense-headed materialists can get it with not much of an imagination stretch. Here's a sample of today's exchange. The guy puts on the headset and he thinks he's living a whole life. Like he's getting married and he gets old and he wakes up and only 15 minutes has passed. He's like, wait, where's my wife? Where's my family? What's going on? <laughs> like he had forgotten that he was outside the game and that he had been plugged in. And, and so we take on a role because that is what ties to the idea that the simulators are us. We live outside the simulation and we are just playing roles. Uh, and that ties much more closely to the Hindu and Buddhist traditions, and even to the Western religious traditions, which tell us that this is not the real world, that the, you know there is a world outside of this, and this is kind of deception in a way, or an illusion, or Maya. In magic, they always claim this, that no, no, it doesn't matter. You think, yeah, they decided last week if you got the job or not, but you haven't checked your email yet. No, no, positive thinking, good karma, bam, you get it, right? Yeah. Because you will progress no matter how bleak the world around you is, you can always open a better door, a better timeline, so to speak. That's right. And, and it may also lead to these strange situations. Like, like I posited in, in my multiverse book that this is an interesting explanation for something called the Mandela effect. Where All right. A certain group of people remember a different timeline than other groups of people. So it's almost like we're merging together right. these different realities. And so different timelines may actually both exist. And, you know, Philip K. Dick actually thought the timeline he was writing about in his book, The Man in the High Castle, uh, where the Japanese and the Germans won World War II, I mean, he came to believe that was a real timeline right. that actually happened, right? An alternate timeline, if you will. But then that got either rewound or reset or stopped. And, and so that gets into other issues around quantum computing and parallel worlds. There are elements of physics which seem to support this idea that that is a very non-materialistic idea that, you know, the world is composed of information mm. uh, and that it gets rendered as people observe it. And then that gets sort of frozen between certain groups of people. Look, we just started talking, you know, collectively in the world about the simulation theory. And what happens? Bam, pandemic. <laughs> Coincidence? <laughs> I think not. Right, something, something to get us to stop thinking about simulation theory <laughs> and remind us. Either that or, or the end is nigh. The chap I'm conversing with is none other than Rizwan Verk, an author, video game pioneer, futurist, startup guru, entrepreneur, investor, board member, best-selling author, indie film producer, bibliophile, and perfect guest for the forum to take on the simulation theory. Notwithstanding, thanks to his books series on this topic, which quickly is becoming the gold standard. Now, Verk first went to MIT between 88 and 92, where he got his B.S. in computer science and engineering. In 08 and 09, he attended Stanford University's GSB, where he got his MB in management. And finally now, between 21 and up on to 24, he's currently doing his PhD at Arizona University's College of Global Futures, specifically researching the impact of virtual environments, metaverse, simulation theory, blockchain, and AI on society. 
He is truly a jack of all trades. He's worked as a mobile designer for Book Bazaar, digital video editing developer for Avid Technologies, application programmer for Lotus Development, tech director for XML, general manager for GameU, CEO for Midverse Studios, chairman for Bitmovio, managing partner for Bayview Labs, and even as judge, speaker, contestant, and mentor for MIT's 100,000K Entrepreneurship competition. Moreover, Riz Verk was the creator of Playlabs at MIT and Brainstorm Technologies, is venture partner with Griffin Gaming Partners and mentor advisor to 500 startups, Ridge Ventures, as well as many other VCs, educational institutions, blockchain organizations and private foundations. He's also an angel investor, advisor, board member, or founding member of a large number of startups, including Discord, Tapjoy, Funzio, Moon Express, Service Metrics, Cambridge Docs, North Bay Solutions, Disruptor Beam, Telltale Games, One Billion Tech, Torform, Pocket Gems, Intelligize, Ridge Ventures, Silver TV, Teta Labs and many others. His video games have included Tapfish, Penny Dreadful, Grimm, Cards of Fate, and Bingo Run. He's even a film producer, and to my amazement is behind the documentaries Sirius on Free Energy, as well as Thrive, What on Earth Will It Take? And the long list at IMDB includes adaptions of the works of Philip K. Dick and Ursula K. Le Guin. Riz writes on his interests and expertise, which ranges from startups and business, video games, blockchain and cryptocurrency, meditation and consciousness, UFOs, UAPs, plus the intersection of science, spirituality, science fiction, religions and UFOs. Much of this you can hear explored in his own podcast, The Simulated Universe. He speaks regularly on these subjects and has been featured in such media outlets as the History Channel, Gaia TV, Inc. Magazine, Value Walk, Execunet, the Boston Globe, TechCrunch, The Telegraph, Leadership Now, Gamma Sutra, The Daily Show with John Stewart, Leadercast, Young Upstarts, Smart Brief, Vox.com, Hacker Noon, The Wall Street Journal, NBC News, Venture Beat. BBC Science, Focus, The Spectator, One Zero, Collective Evolution, Coast to Coast AM, Oom Times, Startup Nation, Digital Trends, Variety, CBS Tapestry, Stanford Social Innovation Review, to name some. His books concerns startup myths and models, Zen entrepreneurship, and above else, on the simulation model, of which his first book on this is the basis for our show today. Enter. Welcome to Forum Borealis, Riz. Thanks for having me on. Great to be with you. Yeah, oh, so great to have you. You have no idea how much I'm looking forward to this show today because, first of all, the topic, I love it. It's right up my alley. Great. And second, I was so impressed with you, like I mentioned before we started, uh, from hearing your first interview with Alex. And 
People go to Skeptico, check the first interview they did. I, I forgot the number, 400 something, because that's a gold standard of this topic and what I hope to achieve today with Riz. Okay, great. Actually, your name should really not be Riz Work, but Wiz Work. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Wiz as in wizard. So I, I can't say enough good things about that interview. Now, Riz, people have already heard your background, yep. your impressive background, which is great because if we were going to uh, go through that today, we wouldn't even have time to get to the interview. So... <laughs> Let's then start first by you telling us how you came into, into this, I wouldn't call it a hypothesis, maybe I should say paradigm or theory. Yeah, sure. So much of my career uh, has been in the computer software industry. And for the past decade or so, I've been making uh, video games, uh, first as an entrepreneur and hands-on designing games. And then later after we sold our company in investing in uh, other people's uh, video game startups, uh, as well as starting a program at MIT where I helped different entrepreneurs figure out how to bring their ideas into reality. And so, you know, as a, a person in Silicon Valley watching the trends of how these games have evolved, uh, not just in the past decade, but really my entire life. So when I was a kid, I used to play uh, the Atari video game system. I, some of your listeners may yeah, remember uh, the, the VCS, uh, it was called back in the day, and then later the 2600. And we used to play classic games like Space Invaders and uh, Pac-Man and Asteroids. <laughs> That's old school. <laughs> <laughs> it's very old school, right? Even pre-Nintendo. <laughs> yeah. um, and I, I think I was in junior high school at the time, or maybe even the tail end of elementary school. And um, I used to play, uh, there was this racing game called Pole Position, which I played and, and the car looked very realistic to me at the time. Of course, these are 8-bit graphics. So today, you know, we have 32-bit and 64-bit graphics. So they look very primitive. But back then, do you remember the old game called Nosferatu? You know, I heard of it. I never played it, though. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, back in the, in the day, that was so impressive, you know. Ooh, <laughs> it was like a horror movie. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And then there was a game at the arcade called Dragon's Lair, right. uh, where they had uh, actual cartoon scenes, like from a, car from a TV cartoon. And that was pretty groundbreaking. And they had to put in like a laser disc inside the cabinet in order to, to make that work. Mm. Uh, but, but I began to wonder about these virtual worlds and what it would be like to like, not just be inside the car, but we would see like these people in the bleachers and we would see this uh, clouds or a city off in the distance. And I wondered, you know, what's in that city? Yeah, are, are those people still around when we're not playing the game? And obviously the answer is no, if you think of it from the point of view of our, uh, our, our 8-bit video games. But that question stayed with me through lots of science fiction, which we can talk about later. Uh, but this idea of if there was a virtual world, what would be going on in different parts of that virtual world at any given time. Mm. Uh, and, and then so when I sold my last video game company, I visited a virtual reality startup in Marin County, which is just across the, the bay from San Francisco. And so, you know, it's a beautiful location you know, you can look out and literally see, you know, this giant bay and the San Francisco skyline. But of course we were, we wanted to look at video game technology. So that was when I first tried on the, the, the virtual reality headsets at the time. I believe this was the HTC Vive and they had a whole room set up and I played a virtual ping pong game. Hmm. And so I was playing this game and they put the controller in my hand 
and it had the, the glasses, which are very big at the time. Um, mm-hmm. They haven't gotten that much smaller yet, but they will eventually. Uh, and it started to feel like I was playing a real table tennis game. And, and the reason wasn't so much the graphics. They weren't that great. Uh, but it was the responsiveness. Like when I moved my hand and to just the right location, it felt like I had actually hit the ping pong ball and it went across the table. And I got so into the game that at the end of the game, I tried to put the, the paddle down on the table and I tried to lean against the table, but of course there was no table. And so the controller <laughs> fell to the floor and I almost fell over and I had to catch myself. Right. <laughs> and that's when I started to wonder more seriously, well, how long will it take us? I mean, clearly these are still primitive graphics. This was just a simple game, but how long will it take us to build technology where we would completely forget there was an outside world. We would be so engrossed that it would be kind of like the Matrix, you know, where, where they forgot there was an outside world. Right. And so that was really what led me down, deep down the rabbit hole of simulation theory, as I laid out what I call the road to the simulation point, which were... But, but wait a minute, you're talking really back in the day. Was there a, such a thing as the simulation theory out there already then? Well, there was. I mean, I mean, in, in its modern form, obviously, it's, it's an age-old philosophy, but in its modern form? Well, yeah. So this wasn't that long ago. Uh, I mean, I was playing this virtual reality headset in 2015, 2016. So we're talking only like seven years ago or so. Uh, So at this point, it it had been out there, but I I wasn't necessarily paying attention to it. Mm. And, you know, Nick Bostrom had written his famous paper, Are We Living in a Simulation, back in 2003. And we can talk more about that. And it turns out Elon Musk, that same, I think it was 2016, the same year that I was playing uh, the, the, the ping pong game, you know, he made a fam- famous statement that the chances that we are not in a simulation, yeah. that we're in base reality is one in billions. Hmm. And so then I began to realize that not only has this idea been out there for a while, but people have started to formalize it. And so, you know, my particular way in though was saying, how do we get from here to the point where we can create our own technology? That is a fully immersive simulation with full AI characters, but also with full immersiveness. Um, mm. So anyway, that's kind of how I got into it. And that's how I wrote the book. And then I realized that a lot of the work that I had been doing separate from my, my professional life, you know, I had been exploring meditation and consciousness and lucid dreaming and shamanism and, and all of these different, you know, sort of aspects of life, navigating by synchronicity, what's been going on with UFOs. And so, you know, I had personal interest in these areas, mm. uh, but I found that the simulation theory was one of the few that could bridge the gap yeah, yeah. You know, between these different areas, between the religious, the mystical, and the scientific and the technological. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. And we're going to delve a little more into that later. But uh, so you're actually pretty late to the, to the party in a way. I mean, the party is still going, but um, <laughs> there was, uh, I read probably around that time, 16, 17, I read the, uh, some popular science magazine, a couple of scientists who claimed that they could prove that it wasn't it wasn't fronted as a simulation theory, but it's a part of that, that we are kind of avatars. They didn't use those words, mm. but that we are outside of, did they say the universe? Yeah, I think they said the universe, not the galaxy, because then we would have been aliens. <laughs> they were talking about how we are outside the universe somehow and like experience the universe through what we today call avatars. 
these guys claim they could prove it. I, I mentioned it to Anthony Peek when I had him on. He, he knew what I was referring to. He confirmed it. I forgot the details. But that's how I started to ta- really take it seriously because I regarded it as a metaphor up to that point. But now I realize, Jesus, people are actually taking it literal. And before we go any further, let me just say one more thing. <laughs> I'm going to flag my position from the outset. I'm pretty convinced per today that the simulation theory is true as a metaphor, or I should probably say as an an analogy, that it is how existence is rigged, but that we're not literally in a computer game. That's my position now. Okay. Obviously, I'm not an oracle, but that's how it appears to me. Because I know this theory from the ancient stuff, the Gnostics and others, and uh, I'm going to mention a few parallels as we go on. But uh, you were going to respond? Sure. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, I was just going to say that the era of modern simulation theory really began after the Matrix, but the first person to really talk about being inside a computer-generated reality, seriously, or one of the first was Philip K. Dick, who right. in 1977 speech in Metz, France, you know, had a famous quote where he said, we are living in a computer program reality. And the only clue we have to it is when some variable is changed. Uh, and then, you know, basically he said that we would rerun the same events and we would have a sense of deja vu. That's a clue that some variable has been changed. And, you know, as part of my research, I interviewed uh, his wife, uh, Tessa, and, you know, she told me some interesting stories about kind of his beliefs about that, uh, you know, and that I, I, I delve deeper into that in my second book uh, uh, about simulation, the simulated multiverse, because mm. what he was really talking about was changing variables. But, but in any case, you can go back to the 60s to uh, a great novel, which is called Simulacron 3, which was the basis for the movie The 13th Floor, which came out in the year of simulation movies. I oh, love that movie. <laughs> that was a great movie, wasn't it? So in 1999, yeah. there were actually several simulation theme movies. So you can see it was kind of in the air. Not only did the Matrix come out, but the 13th floor, and there was another one called Existence. And probably the only year we had more simulation movies than that year was last year. And and Dark City, I think. Something. Yeah, it was Dark City also that year. It may have been the same year, actually. Around that time, at least. It's it's an old one. Certainly late 90s. Mm. It might have been 98 or 99. Mm. Um, And then last year, we had four simulation theme movies come out. Uh, Of course, The Matrix Reboot, but we also had Free Guy, which is about NPCs. Uh, And we had uh, one called Bliss, and then there was a documentary, uh, I think it was called, uh, what was it called, A Glitch in the Matrix? Uh, um, anyway, there, there were four movies that came out last year. And so you can see this topic seems to come up and, and, and it's in the air. But, you know, part of my contribution to it is both as a technologist to say, okay, how practically could we get there? And what are those stages like? And then you can tie it to the overall theory that says that if we can get there, then probably someone has already gotten there if you consider the age of a universe, right? If somebody had 10,000 years or 100,000 years or a million years more time than we do to develop this technology, you know, they could certainly get there pretty quickly, uh, which leads... So they become gods of this new universe that they create. So in a way, you could say that uh, existence, this could be one uh, path, that uh, civilization becomes so advanced that they kick off their own. I mean, it's rudimentary for us today, but maybe a thousand years down the road, there's like conscious beings trapped in our simulation that we have created. 
and eventually they may get to the point where they create one and then you have like many stairs of <laughs> simulations right that's right and in fact we just talked about uh, the 13th floor and you know if if you remember in that movie it started off in the 1990s and they had created uh, a simulation of i think it was the 1940s or so mm. and so when they stepped in the simulation it was like they were going back in time and then you know i'll give it away since it's a pretty old movie yeah. at this point <laughs> it's allowed yeah during the by the end of the movie he realizes that they are part of a simulation from a future time and the woman that comes into the simulation uh to tell and tells him that says that they had thousands of simulations and only one of those in only one of those they developed their own simulations and that's why they had to shut this one down right right because if you start to develop your own simulations perhaps you're going to use up all the computing power or there are other issues at stake that come into play so that's you know one kind of philosophical issue that comes up around simulation theory another one that i think is very important and 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 part of my contribution is to get people to think about this is uh the difference between what i call the npc version yeah. or non-player character version of the simulation and the rpg version or the role-playing game version and i think this there's, there's a lot of confusion about this in fact most modern simulation theorists like nick bostrom and elon musk and you know a bunch of others when they talk about uh, living in a simulation they're primarily talking about where there are ais in the simulation that exist only in the simulation uh, because it falls out of the math that they used and we can go over that math if you want mm. uh, but the basic idea is that you can create uh, if if you can create npcs or ai characters inside a video game you can create as many as you want suppose you can create a billion of them inside your simulation you can then create another simulation and another simulation all theoretically all you need is more computing power and so eventually you can create billions of simulations with trillions of beings in them uh, so you have many many beings that are simulated hang on you're in, not talking you're now talking about parallel ones you're not talking about that they create another one again no no i'm not talking about they create i'm saying no. let's just keep it at one level to yeah. keep it simple yeah. yeah i mean when you get into the nested levels it gets a little more complicated hmm. but the basic argument of modern simulation theory is that because it's so easy to create new beings and new simulated worlds there will be many more simulated worlds and simulated beings then there are biological ones mm. uh, and therefore if you are a being and you live in a world which one are you more likely to be statistically speaking uh, are you more likely to be a biological being or a simulated one so there's a lot more of these than there are those and mm. so that's where the math that Elon Musk and Nick Bostrom and others bring up but primarily those numbers rely on lots and lots of ai characters inside the simulation now the other version it's not really a version it's a it's more of a continuum right uh is the, the rpg version where you we exist outside the game and we inhabit an avatar inside the game so mm. that is more actually like the matrix that that's a, what you call the role player version the right? role playing game version mm. we are playing a role within that game uh or you know more recently people might enjoy uh uh what what's that show rick and morty right <laughs> which has mm. It has this theme of a, of a game where you know the guy puts on the headset and he thinks he's living a whole life, like he's getting married and <laughs> he gets old and he wakes up and only 15 minutes has passed. He's like, "Wait, where's my wife? Where's my family? What's going on?" <laughs> yeah. Like he had forgotten that he was outside the game and that he had been plugged in. And and so the the RPG version is a little more like that, 
where we take on a role. And I believe that is actually an interesting aspect of this because that is what ties to the idea that the simulators are us. We live outside the simulation and we are just playing roles. Uh, And that ties much more closely to the Hindu and Buddhist traditions and even to the Western religious traditions, which tell us that this is not the real world, that, that, you know, there is a world outside of this. And this is kind of deception in a way or an illusion or Maya, you know, as they say in the ancient Indian texts. Yeah. Yeah. But um, uh, there is a third option to the, to the everyone are AIs. I mean, that's the materialist version, right? Yes. And by the way, what I love with this theory is that it, uh, uh, there's two things that's very great with this theory. Number one, it can explain absolutely everything. It allows for stuff like, let's take something outrageous, flat earth. Well, according to this theory, the earth can be round, flat, hollow, whatever you want at the same time. And in the same vein, it can cater to materialism and spirituality at the same time. We may uh, go into that uh, so it becomes clearer. And I also love that this is really a shortcut for the dense materialists to start getting it, as I say, because they never understood mysticism, esotericism, not even basic spirituality or religion. They are often very literal, like fundamentalists, like religious fundamentalists, they're very literalism. So they have problem understanding metaphors, the problem understanding what we could call a magical or a mythological language. It's just a language to explain reality. Yep. So they've never had time for ancient lore about these things, or current for that matter. But now with the simulation theory, that is actually a way of seeing that they can get everything that people have worked with in, in deeper philosophy uh, up until now, because it's such a perfect allegory or, or analogy to what's going on. Yeah. But you said there's two versions here. There's one where we are living beings and we are interacting with each other as avatars, in addition to Agent Smith, the AIs, right? That's number one, yep. which is obviously what non-materialists would adhere to. And then there's number two, which is the everyone are AI, including us, which is outrageous in my uh, view. But of course, that's what the materialists believe. Now, that's a dichotomy, but there is a third explanation. And that's that uh, someone who is part of creation cannot generate, uh, I mean, cannot create life out of thin air. Sure, we can prolong life, but we need life to create new life, so to speak. So so we can kind of prolong or, or extend it in a way, but we can't invent it from thin air. But what we can do is create vehicles that when they have the right, should I say, setting, that when they rigged correctly, wired correctly, then life will manifest within those. So what I'm saying is we have the ability maybe to create avatars that then life will inhabit if you see what I mean. All right. And that could be through all through these levels. So if we go away from the one level thing and go back to the someone creates something and then they create something and then they create something, you know, the concept of reincarnation, that's always been a complex thing. Are we reincarnating backwards in time? Can we reincarnate on other planets, uh, etc.? There's so many. But here's another one. Could we reincarnate in different levels of this 
simulation, this just ever unfolding simulation thing. And to throw in a final curveball, you also have the idea that you have a source, right? Call it God, call it whatever. But everything from that source will degrade. So the further away from the source you are, the further away from the light, if you like, the more degraded it becomes. I think the same must be true of such a thing as this, meaning that someone in our simulation cannot surpass us in a way. And so then you would have simulation upon simulation upon simulation, which is a downward spiral. And so you go deeper and deeper into darkness or into matter, if you like. And we haven't even mentioned this yet, but one thing is to understand that this can happen. But what about the point of playing the game, right? The point of playing the game is to liberate yourself, as Buddha would say, is to get back home. And and it's true what you say, Western, if you go back to ancient uh, paganism, uh, esotericism, uh, spirituality in the West, they had pretty similar ideas to, to, uh, you know, the Greeks, for example, to uh, Hindu and, and Buddhism. So if it's about getting home, then it's about... It's not about going deeper into simulations. It's, it's about finding a way to go up, up in the simulations, if you like. I've thrown a lot of things on the table now. Feel free to take anything and run with it. Uh, yeah, you have. Uh, you brought up a few different topics there. So, <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, but starting with, I, I think, uh, this idea of the dichotomy. I mean, I like to point it out just so that people can think about uh, the assumptions that they're making when they talk about the simulation hypothesis, that the truth of the matter is they're not mutually exclusive, right? As you mentioned, uh, and I talk about a lot, in The Matrix, you have the avatars of the characters like Neo and Morpheus, uh, who's named after the Greek god of right. dreams um, and Trinity, but you also have the Agent Smiths and you have the other programs who actually play a more important role uh, you know, as the, uh, the, the Matrix sequels uh, go through. And so in World of Warcraft, we have both NPCs and PCs or player characters as well and avatars, right? right? So we have both of those mixing inside the same world. And that's what creates, I think, the opportunity to have a point uh, for the simulation. So let, let's talk about that thing first, which is, you know, what is the point? Right. And, uh, you know, I'm a computer scientist. So there's a structure we call a stack where, you know, you have uh, one thing. It's like the old game with the rings and the, the wooden, uh, there's like a wooden rod and you put the ring on like the Tower of Hanoi, I think it was called. And then you put a smaller one on top of that and then you put a smaller one on top of that. But you, you always have to take the top one off first before you can get to the one underneath. And so you had to move the rings from one, you know, one wooden rod to the other. And it was very complicated to get to the right one. But, you know, I like to ask, why do we play video games and why do we run simulations? Well, there's a couple of reasons. We run simulations to see what would happen, Mm. right? We, we, We would like to find out the chances of, you know, a catastrophic nuclear mm. war or a pandemic or the weather, right? We were trying to simulate. And turns out there's a set of problems where there's enough uncertainty that it's very difficult to just say what will happen without going through all of the steps. And, and that's a process that uh, there's a, a physicist turned a computer scientist named Stephen Wolfram 
who, who coined the term computationally irreducible. And what he said was, you can't just take a shortcut with a simple equation and figure out what's going to happen at step 5 million and 1. You have to actually run the simulation or the computer program through to steps, you know, 4 million, 9, 9, 9, 9, 9, 9. And then you have to go to step 5 million and then step 5 million and 1. And, and then you can see what will happen with all of the assumptions that were built up. And so there's this idea in the NPC world that, you know, the, the simulation is being run to see possible outcomes. And the only way to do that is to run multiple simulations and to keep changing the variables or to give the participants some element of either randomness or free will, uh, which gets into a whole nother discussion. Right. Uh, but, but so that's one reason. The other reason we play video games is to have experiences that we can't have outside the game, right? So, for example, I cannot you know, jump on a dragon and fly around and, and slay orcs <laughs> in what we call physical reality. But I can do it inside, you know, a game, uh, a fantasy Lord of the Rings type game or a space game. Uh, so there are experiences that we can have that for whatever reason we want to have and we want to, to enjoy ourselves. Uh, sometimes we want to use virtual reality for learning purposes as well. And so, you know, I, I think that that ties more closely to what you've been talking about and what uh, the, the ancient religions have been telling us is that we come into this world to play a role in order to learn lessons, right? So when we play video games, you don't just play free form. For the most part, you have what are called quests and achievements. And the quests kind of direct you to, okay, what is it you need to learn next, mm. right? And you, you, you try to master it, but you may or may not get it the first time, but you can play it again until you master it. And so there's this process of leveling up, you know, that occurs with characters inside video games. And as your character levels up, you become better at the game as well. And I think that analogy holds much better to the, the RPG version and, and to the ancient religions that we are here to learn. Mm. Perhaps there are ex experiences that we can have here that we cannot have without right. being incarnated in bodily form. And if you talk to people that have had near-death experiences, for example, mm. you know they'll tell you the first thing or one of the first things they report once they go to the other side, uh, in addition to perhaps a tunnel and a light and uh, encountering a being of light um, and, and sort of this love that's there. But they many of them also talk about a life review. Mm. And in the life review, they watch – every single thing that's happened to them, including every single thought. Yeah. And not just that, but they can see it from the point of view of the other people right. that they've interacted with. And, you know, one of my uh, the, one, of, one of my friends is a gentleman named Daniel Brinkley, uh, and he was one of the first that, that I read about. He wrote a book called uh, Saved by the Light back in the 90s. Mm -hmm. And he was struck by lightning, and, and he died. And he calls it holographic panoramic 360 life review and, and he was in the army and, and he claimed to have shot and assassinated people so in his life review he had to go and experience what it was like for that person to be shot by him wow. <clears throat> and so replaying is a key part <clears throat> of what we do when we get out of uh this experience <clears throat> excuse me it's as if we do a, a and uh, what's called like a a review, an after engagement review, right? We look back at our gameplay session. Mm. And if you look on YouTube, you'll see this happens. People will record their video game sessions. And like my nephews who are very young, you know, ones, I think the youngest one now is 10, but I think even when he was like five, 
he was like, oh, I'm going to go watch YouTube. So what are you watching on YouTube? Oh, I'm watching someone play a video game. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and they're like talking about what they were doing in the game. And it just reminded me so much of, of this idea of a life review. Um, right. And and turns out when, when we replay a video game, there's technology. And I was involved in a startup. Uh, this was happening right around the same time. And in, in 2016 that I played the ping pong game where we could take a video game like League of Legends, which is very popular, or World of Warcraft or Counter-Strike Global Offensive, which is closer to this idea of shooting people. Mm. And we could go to any location, right? Instead of seeing it from your avatar's perspective, we could change what's called a virtual camera. And you could see it from the perspective of the people you were shooting, right? Mm. So we could go anywhere inside this 3D space and we could replay it from there. Now we couldn't do, we couldn't make you feel what it was like no. to be shot because that that's not part of our technology yet. Mm. Mm. But you can imagine a more sophisticated video game technology, which will allow you to have not just visuals and audio, uh, but uh, sensations, right? Kinesthetic sensations, and perhaps eventually even emotions. And then you get pretty much what they've been they've been telling us all along. And so, you know, this is where this idea of uh, you know, enlightenment and karma and learning from your experiences. And in my book, in the simulation hypothesis, I lay out a pretty detailed view of karma as a questing system. Like if this were a video game, how would you turn it into a list of quests? And you would basically have this long list of things mm. that you had to accomplish. And maybe you only pick up a few of those uh, during this gameplay session. And maybe you don't do so well. And then you got to go back and do it again another time. Yeah. Uh, but but it exists somewhere. And that somewhere is what we call in Silicon Valley, the cloud, right? Mm. And in video games, we have the rendered world. So this is part of the metaphor that's actually important. And that is what ties the materialists to the spiritual. Because inside a video game, you have the actual rendered world. And then you have this information outside of that, like right on your screen, you can see you've got a map, you've got an inventory, you've got all this stuff that cannot be seen just in the 3D part of the scene. But it's information that is driving what's actually happening in the scene. And I feel like that's a, a great metaphor for, you know, the materialists are concerned only with what's in the 3D scene. Yeah. They're not concerned with any information that's outside of it, that is directing it, that like the list of quests that you've signed up for, uh, and perhaps you and another person you know, have a certain relationship in a previous life and you need to somehow resolve some issues. So that goes on your questing system and on their questing system. Yeah. And if they both, in video games, you have to accept the quests or, or you have group quests. Mm. So so that analogy gets... Group karma is also a concept. Yeah, the group karma as well. Mm. Like you choose mm. the groups that you might want to be part of because these groups may have certain karma, mm. right? And, and, you know, this gets into lots of interesting <laughs> issues around that idea. Mm. Uh, what happened to many of the Nazis during World War II? Well, there's lots of theories, but most likely they, they had to then experience what it was like to be persecuted. Mm. And so who knows where they went next. Probably reincarnated as Palestinian in Israel. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> That's one uh, one very unpopular, at least in the liberal world, <laughs> to yeah, say. Obviously. But uh, yeah. it's, it's that would be one place. There's plenty of places in the world where they can experience what it's like to mm. be persecuted, I think, yeah. Mm. No, but it is brilliant because uh, this, is, this is it, that everything... You know, we can take any concept in spirituality and religion and we can put it into the test of the simulation hypothesis and we will find a parallel. So, for example, when you say, say that, um, uh, you know, I look at science in, in this perspective. I look at science as 
how how does the simulation itself work or rather how can you hack it that's kind of science role in in existence right whereas religion's role and before science came religion's role is how do you play the game how do you advance how do you get to your quest that's what they've been concerned about all these years and then we evolve enough to start finding hacks <laughs> <laughs> you know anti science so so i've never been a fan of trying to set them up towards each other against each other because they are occupied with different things so now i'm saying science i'm not saying materialism because that is kind of a paradigm that's like that's like a kind of a religion but science itself is more like hacking it so and it's brilliant you talk about quests brilliant because we are used to thinking yeah i'll either play let's say civilization and then i'll have the experience of a world leader or something right absolutely or i'll play uh, wolfenstein okay then i will have the experience of <laughs> these nazis you talked about <laughs> or i will play you know there's so many different types of games you can play but the brilliant thing with our game the simulation we live in is that it's it's not just a multiplayer game it's a multi game like you can choose what kind of quest you're on what kind of uh, it's such an advanced game that you can have all these different types of games in the same game if you see what i mean yeah absolutely i mean you can have all types of quests within this particular run of the simulation and uh, you know you can also have uh, slightly different experiences uh, of of all of these simulations as well. But to, to come back to your point about science and spirituality, mm. I agree with that analysis. And you know, I like to say that inside a video game, there's something called a physics engine. Right? And that is how we set up a game when we create one. And so, for example, in some games you can fly, and in other games you can just walk, right? Or mm. uh, you can drive a car, uh, but you can't fly. And so, uh, or there's gravity, but the gravity is, you know, different on different planets. Uh, so there's all these rules that get put into, or you can go through walls or you can't go through walls, right? And so all of that is defined by the physics engine. And in some ways, I see science as trying to figure out <laughs> what is the physics engine of this world? What are those rules, you know that have been put in place. So, so physics engine is a term within uh, the computer world. Yes, yes, it's within specifically the video game world. Like when you create a video game, mm. you choose a physics engine as part of your overall set of software or tools because it's too difficult to write that every time. Like for example, you know if you oh, if you they share engines. Right. Yeah. So if you're going if you have a a cup and you spill it, you know, all those particles, what happens to those? That's actually a very difficult problem, right? If you okay. had to write that every time, you would never get around to writing your video game, right? right. Um, and, and so these physics engines help simulate the physics of the real world, or if you refine it or change it, you know, they help you define that just like there are 3D engines like Unity and development environments now that 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 kind of pull mm. all that stuff together for you, and that's what that's why we can create much more sophisticated video games today more quickly than you know back in the days of Pac-Man, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, you had to write everything in machine language uh, assembly code, which are like these hex codes, right? And I remember this as a kid. We used to I used to look at these 
old magazines like Byte magazine, and they showed you how to like type in. You had to type in all the hexadecimal characters just right. Uh, but now we have much more sophisticated tools that say this is a 3D modeling tool, this is a rendering tool. All of these tools are available, and then they get assembled into what is a video game today. But 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 getting back to this this science religion duality, I mean, 500 years ago. Right, you had Galileo being persecuted by the Catholic Church because the dominant model was, at least mm-hmm. within the West, it was a uh, a, a sort of Christian centric or Catholic in this case the the Church uh, prosecuting anyone who disagreed with the Church, and so scientists had to go into what's called the Invisible College, uh, which were people that were uh, you know looking at Copernicus's discovery and trying to to further science. That's right. The Rosicrucians were big there, and the Masons too. That's right, That's, invisible college, yeah. Yeah, but so that was an interesting term that, that arose at that time. But now, 500 years later, the dominant paradigm in the West, at least, is science. And right. materialism is a part of that as well. And so anyone who investigates now, any scientists who are trying to investigate these types of phenomena, whether it's remote viewing, whether it's UFOs, whether it's psychic phenomena. Yeah, they need an invisible college. They need an invisible yeah. college. And, and so, you know, Jacques Vallée, who's one of the... Brilliant guy. Yeah, brilliant guy and and respected guy uh, who's been doing UFO research since the 1960s as part of Project Blue Book. He actually wrote a forward for me uh, in the French edition of the simulation hypothesis. Kudos. But, you know, he actually wrote a book called The Invisible College back in the 70s. That's right. uh, Talking about scientists who were interested in in figuring out this mystery of what are these things. And and so, you know, now it's sort of the opposite. The, the, Mm. the, The scientists who believe that there's more going on than we have been able to demonstrate in our laboratories, or even in some cases we have demonstrated in our laboratories that this stuff happens, but not to the satisfaction of the broader community of scientists. It's like they have to, you know, kind of hide their interest a little bit. Yeah, but that, that satisfaction is entirely dependent on what I would call religion or paradigm and not on science. That's a problem. But it's always been like that for human beings. Uh, we can't handle paradigm expansions paradigm shift unless you know like popper said you you know need an extra generation and i think this simulation uh, hypothesis when it really gets to spread yeah. new people uh, growing up now i think the the divide between spirituality and science will be re- uh, i mean materialism and spirituality will be reduced because again this explains everything and then you can choose you know which which version do you want to adopt the one that nobody is alive and we're all just ones and zeros or who knows maybe in our simulation it's probably not a dual it's probably more like quantum computing seven <laughs> levels <laughs> you know because it's all advanced but but i think that's what's going on because this you you can perfectly well be a christian or a muslim and the simulation theory can kind of encompass both of them if you see what i mean yeah, it can. And if you're open minded enough to grasp the metaphors, and I, I think this is very true. I was talking on a radio show, which was in the in the Bible Belt in, in the US, which is very Christian. Mm. And they were like, that's not what Jesus said. We're, we're not a similar. And then I kind of explained to them exactly why I believe 
this analogy applies. And then they were like, oh, yeah, well, when you put it that way, exactly. as opposed yes. to us being mindless AI, yes. <laughs> which is what they have a knee-jerk reaction to, right? Of course. And, yes. and the scientists have a knee-jerk reaction to to the opposite. That can yes. be, yeah, they're like, no, no, that's just religion <laughs> for atheists, right? Right, right, <laughs> And in right. fact, I say yes, like rather than saying no, <laughs> I say yes, simulation theory is religion for atheists yeah. because it's showing atheists that there could be a paradigm outside of the way that they're thinking. And so, you know, even Nick Bostrom, who, who wrote this paper back in 2003, you know, he, he, he writes about examples where people who were atheists said, huh, I have to reconsider this a little bit because anyone outside the simulation would seem to us as having, you know, either superpowers or being gods or being divine uh, mm. in some way or, or what we would call in the video game industry super users, right? You mm. can have super users who have powers that other people don't necessarily have. Uh, and the rules are a little more flexible for them than they are for everyone else. And, uh, you know, that's a paradigm that's not there in science. So we, we dismiss the outlying data because we say, well, that's not reproducible or sure. Some guy says he saw it, but that doesn't mean anything. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's kind of like uh, back in the 1700s, uh, many people were reporting rocks falling from the sky. Mm -hmm. uh, and in antiquity, those were those were interpreted as they came from God or like in the Islamic tradition in, in Saudi Arabia, they just had the Hajj, which is this pilgrimage where everybody goes to the Kaaba in Mecca. Yeah, yeah. And there's a stone there. Mm -hmm. That's the cornerstone of the Kaaba. And I actually saw it when I was a kid. Wow. Uh, and we lived there for a year. Wow. And it was just this dark black stone. It was very jagged. Right. And so the interpretation was, well, this came from, you know, when when God kicked Adam out of paradise, mm -hmm. you know, or the Garden of Eden. Right. This this was one of those the fragments that came down with him. And so that was an interpretation. And so the mm -hmm. scientists said, oh, that's just you know, religious nonsense. There are no rocks in the sky. Therefore, we cannot accept uh, any data th that is anecdotal. Was this before they knew about meteor? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And mm. so in the early 1800s, the, the French, uh, uh, the Society of, of Scientists in Paris, I forget the exact name, they sent someone to investigate and there was a, a meteor storm where there were just thousands of fragments and lots of people saw it. And then they had to change their paradigm. So the point was there they went from, it can't be rocks from the sky, falling from the sky, because there are no rocks in the sky, mm. to, okay, we need a better model uh, mm. of, of how the universe works that can explain and encompass these things which were anomalies before in which we kind of closed our eyes or stuck our head in the sand. Use, use whatever metaphor you want. And I believe that's happening now as well with the materialists focused in science is that they just kind of close their eyes to these other phenomena. But that's part of the reason is they don't have a model that would even theoretically allow for these other things to happen. Uh, and, and I think simulation theory provides at least a framework for that. I mean, it's not, yeah. it's not a detailed equation set of models, but it's, it's a good framework for, for getting into a different paradigm and a different way of thinking about things, which can then lead to understanding, you know, how, how this might be possible. I mean, I, for example, I was uh, listening to a radio show the other day about UFOs with uh, Eric Weinstein, who's a very well-known physicist, uh, yeah. who's also more of a commentator these days, uh, and and he was arguing with uh, with a skeptic who was trying to you know who, who likes to debunk UFO videos, and they said, well, UFOs we can handle, but. That remote viewing stuff is just nonsense, right? <laughs> they mm. that, right? I mean, so materialists would take the opposite uh, view, so that they don't agree among themselves even. So they don't, they don't. Mm. But with remote viewing, it's about getting coordinates and locations. And right. if if you had a metaphor that it was closer to what I just talked about, 
with uh, this this startup I mentioned that could take a video game and we can place the virtual camera at any X, Y, Z coordinate, mm. right? Anywhere mm. within that game and we can render and watch what is happening there at any point T in time, right? And so if, if you had a different metaphor or understanding, you could at least see how that's possible and then mm. instead of just dismissing it as nonsense, right, you might say, well, okay, maybe most people aren't able to do it, but some people seem to have had some successful incidents and we don't know why. Right? We can't reproduce it all the time, but at least we know it's happened sometimes and we know that there is a, a theoretical model for how it might happen. Um, but, you know, usually they're not even willing to go go that far because it's just so outside the scope of, of what our, our model is. Yeah. And, and a normal reincarnation would be the concept of that you have several lives as a player. So you, you bump into a problem, oh, damn, I got killed, and then, bam, I'm back, and I'm continuing my quest. That's, that's in line with the idea among people that you have a red thread throughout your existence. Like every life, you improve in terms of getting closer to that bigger quest. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so reincarnation is one of the really interesting, uh, I think, analogies for the simulation hypothesis. In fact, we even use in, in video games or early video games this idea of many lives, right? Mm. Uh, and the term avatar is an old uh, Sanskrit term, which means to descend, right? Mm. And it was first used in, um, I think it was 1988. Uh, by a group of uh, video game developers at Lucas Arts, which was, uh, you know, Star Wars creator. Yeah, I always wondered why they started using that word for this, but now it finally makes sense, actually. <laughs> yeah, because in a way, you're descending from this physical world yeah. into that sort of more limited world. It was an MMORPG mm. called uh, Habitat. I met the guys that built it actually a few years back in Silicon Valley. Wow. Uh, and then there was a novel called Snow Crash, which came out in 1992, where uh, he really popularized that term, avatar, which and the term the metaverse, which, of course, is everywhere nowadays in technology. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so those terms that came from the early video game industry actually tie very much. I'm sure... You know, I met another guy, Nolan Bushnell, years ago, who was the founder of Atari. And, uh, oh, wow. you know, they had created not just the Atari console that I played as a kid, but the first, you know, arcade video game cabinets. Uh, one of them was right. Pong. Right. Um, and then there were many others. And, and he had a saying, which is very interesting, that he would tell to his game designers. And I think this applies very much to our idea of the world as a simulation or a game. He said, games should be easy to play but hard to master. Right. <laughs> and, right. And that is a great way to describe life. It's easy to play in a way, <laughs> but uh, it's difficult uh. to master where you have to keep at it and you have to keep going through these again and again. Right. And so with reincarnation, it fits very well because you play the role and you're, you're pretty much stuck in the role from the time you born to the time you die, which to us seems like a long time. But for the person, you know, the, the player outside, it may only be 15 minutes. Uh, you know, we hear the yeah, time is an illusion. anyway. exactly. Yeah. Time doesn't really exist. And in this concept, it, it just breaks down, right? That's right. We have all the time in the world. Exactly. Yep. And, and, you know, that's why when people talk about reincarnation, I mean, I always found it strange when I first. Uh, you know, started looking into the ideas, you know, they say, oh, there have been 10,000 lives. It's like 10,000 lives. That's like way, way too long. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but we must be slow learners if we had to go that many lives. Right. <laughs> yeah, but, 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 but just for people who don't, who only knows the modern version of the word avatar, the original version means that some divine being, someone more advanced than us, at least, 
are able to materialize or descend, as you said, yeah. um, in like all the great, you know, Rumi, Pythagoras, Buddha, Jesus, the whole lot of them are called avatars because they're not just a person like me who just suddenly gets it, but that they actually are sent to earth, often to, you know, bring out an important message, a new era, maybe a new religion, blah, blah, blah. So that's how people have used that word. And then comes your industry and snatches that word. And now that's what people think, right? But for the first time, I can see how these two actually go together yeah that's right i mean the historical meaning of the term is was very much applied to advanced beings as you said and you know one of my uh favorite books uh uh, is called autobiography of a yogi i don't know if you've read it right uh, by paramhansa yogananda which was yes you know he came to the america from india in like the 1920s so almost a hundred years ago Mm. um and uh he used the term and he may have been one of the first to really popularize it in, in in English he used the term maha avatar and maha just means great an avatar right. uh, means an advanced being and so but the theosophists also did a very good job of spreading that concept that's right yes mm. and they were even earlier I think right 1890s or so mm. um, I, I forget the exact time for the of the theosophists yeah but yeah now you can see that this idea of descending uh, into a physical reality is, is, is. Or a lower reality, I think we should say, because nothing <laughs> is physical anymore with this new, uh, revelation. <laughs> That's right. I should say. <laughs> it's just a little, I mean, they would say, the, the, those we create would call that physical, right? And refer to our world yeah, as spiritual. Yeah, to them, the video game character will bump into the video game table, right? <laughs> just yes. like my paddle hit my ping pong ball, right? To them, that was the physical world, right? Once right. you're inside. Yeah. But, uh, of course, uh, there's so many. Uh, we're going to get to the physics of this. When th- With that, I mean, uh, it's more than just a theory. There's also observations made in science that should suggest reality is like that. But I enjoy this philosophical aspect of it. So let's dwell a little more because there's at least two, no, there's three very important Ideas that we, we, we can't move the, from the philosophical level before we have gone through those three things. And I know this because uh, I heard your interview with Alex and okay. you mentioned super users. Let's start with that. Now, okay, yeah. not necessarily everyone knows what a super user is in terms of uh, computers. So let's start with that and then we can go to the metaphor that it represents in our world. Uh, sure. Well, so the idea of a super user is, is someone that has more rights inside a computer system than your ordinary user. So, for example, in your company, you may have a server or an email system, and you, you only have the rights to your email, right? You can't send email uh, from somebody else. Uh, but a super user might be your IT administrator, right? Mm. So they have the rights to everybody's email, particularly in a company, I guess, where they're monitoring everybody's email. But right, right. leaving that aside, it, it's super user. Un- unheard of in my country, though, but go on. Right. Yeah, not unheard of here in the U.S. But <laughs> I know. Uh, but it's not necessarily just for emails. I mean, for file systems, right? You only want the people in marketing to be able to write to the marketing server. Right. You only want the people in HR to be able to read the HR report. So, so it's about rights and meaning, you know, who can read a file, write a file. And then within the, the video game context, right? We, we take it away from just files and servers and to a graphical world, right? And so you can think of it as kind of higher level users. So uh, inside a video game, a level, I might only be level five, 
and you might be level 50, let's say, right? And you may have developed the ability to, um, you know, fly, uh, or you may have a wand that can create things. Mm. And to me, that would just seem like magic, right? Because as, mm. as a level five user, I can't do that. Now, one interesting thing about the the this metaphor is the way video games work is you and I may be in the same scene, but it's really our avatars that are together. Yeah. But yeah. not really. What really happens is, and this is exactly what's happening now. You and I are not really having this conversation, right? Mm. I'm hearing you on my computer, and you're hearing a digital recreation of my voice on your computer. Mm. And then the listeners are hearing a replay of the recording based on the data on their computers, mm. right? Uh, because it's all digital. We're not actually sending our 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 voice, uh, you know, wave sound waves <laughs> across the Atlantic here. Um, and and but so what's happening is there is a local rendering of this and each of us thinks we're seeing the real thing but none of us is actually seeing the real conversation right? mm. each of us is seeing a locally rendered version of what's happening in that scene and the same is true if we were actually avatars inside you know grand theft auto or world of warcraft or some matrix game mm. i would be seeing it on my computer now why is that important that's important because if you're a level 99 you know wizard you might see there's a there's a gate or a special door in the side of the mountain. But as a level five user, I can't see it because I don't have that ability. But to mm. me, it looks like there is no gate, right? There is no mm. door in the mountain. It's just a mountain. And to you, so it's possible we could be in the exact same situation. That, that's the materialist speaking. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, Sorry. that's the materialist at level five. I just saying, have to kick them. There is nothing there. I can't see yeah. it. And yeah. obviously, I can bring any of my friends, and they can't see it either. So, therefore, we're right. <laughs> therefore, yeah. it doesn't But exist. I insist there are angels. There are UFOs. I can see them with my own eyes. Oh, you're crazy. <laughs> you're crazy. I don't see them. Therefore, yeah. they're not there. But not just mm. me. All of my colleagues don't see them. Right, right, right. right. And, and so... It's the exact same model. And so, you know, you can think of a super user as someone that can have abilities and do things that other people can't do. Uh, and then you hear about... An, an extrasensory perception is the exact right word for that. Yeah, because it's not... Default in the Something game. that is sort of sensory and rendered that everybody mm. has. Mm. Uh, but like in the video games, we have inventories. Like a super user might be the admin from the game company. They can see what you have and what I have. But I can't see right. what you have in your inventory right. uh, necessarily unless you allow me to or you give me those rights. Uh, and then so we hear stories, right, within uh, even Autobiography of a Yogi. And I mentioned it again just because I actually... Uh, my next book is uh, sort of a lessons learned from autobiography of yogi for modern readers, and one of the big questions. Oh, wow, is, that that sounds that sounds like a show in itself. Of course, I did notice, and we're going to plug your book at the end. But I did notice going through your bibliography that you have. You, you do you know the book Sen and the Art of Mo Motorcycle Maintenance? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So I kind of got that vibe from some of your other books. That's not uh, simulation things. So that's interesting. But go on, go on. Yeah, and so you know when I when modern readers read it, one of the questions is there are like these miracles and this XESP and people are materializing objects left and right and some guys calling on a djinn to make like a piece of gold disappear in one place and appear in another place and they just seem kind of you know incredible mm. uh, and perhaps non-believable to the modern mm. reader but if you look at it from the point of view of super users right 
I mean, that is what we do in video games. People have the ability to deposit things in locations and pick them up and they disappear. So to the lower level users, or what happened to that rock? It was there, but it's not there anymore, mm. right? And they have the ability to put it somewhere else in, in inventory or in... I believe we just have cracked the mystery of uh, vanishing socks. <laughs> yes, that's true. Although, you know, recently I had to replace my washer dryer and I found a whole bunch of them in the back <laughs> where I couldn't... <laughs> I couldn't access them. Yeah, that's the old conspiracy between the sock industry and the washing machine industry. We all know about that. <laughs> right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah, so there's many ways it's rigged, but um, I'm thinking um, like super users, so you can achieve, we, we all start have a common starting point. That's like the nature laws within this that simulation in, in question. Right. And then you can achieve extra abilities as you progress in the game. And there's two ways to do that, so to speak. You can hack it, which is the crude way, and to science. Now we can fly because, uh, with a uh, aeroplane, or you can do it the old school way, which is actually develop yourself. Right. Uh, and there you can have like astral travel, or you can have like uh, maybe even levitation if we go that far. So it's not just like one. I think all phenomenons can be explained with this uh, theory. Yeah, and in the ancient Indian traditions, they call them cities. Uh, right. Which right. are, you know, particular superpowers, if you will. Yeah. And the modern term is superpowers because we think of superhero films. But one uh, TV series that's quite popular here in the U.S. Uh, is Stranger Things. I don't know if uh, it's yeah. as popular in Europe. Yeah. Uh, but I like it because I was about the same age as those kids <laughs> during those years in the 1980s. Right. But they were playing Dungeons and Dragons uh, at, in, at sort of the beginning of each of the seasons. And they used that as a way to get into the story. But the way you play Dungeons and Dragons, which really was the precursor to a lot of role-playing games online today, mm. it was you would create what's called a character sheet, right? And mm. you would say, okay, my character has uh, is a uh, warrior or is a wizard. You would choose a profession, but you would also choose a race, uh, an elf, a dwarf. But you you have these attributes like strength, cunning, intelligence, etc. And uh, you know you would choose those, and then the party is assembled from these characters, and you start at level one, and you have to go up. But the the truth is, not every character is equal in that sense, right? Some characters are better at X, you know, some are just stronger, and others are better at Y. Maybe they're more mm. cunning, they're better at being thieves, or maybe they have a magical ability. And I feel like that sometimes happens in, in life as well. Now, where the, you know, we sort of choose our character for this upcoming life, uh, and we have certain strengths and weaknesses. And, you know, we have storylines. So that's the other part of it, right? We've talked about quests mm. and achievements, but we also have these plot lines or storylines which tie together maybe individual, karma. which could be like karma, or mm. it could be like more like, Hey, I want to have uh, the experience of being in a war, right? Mm. <laughs> or, or even to your idea of different types of games. Um, and I, I ne in my next life, I want to have the experience of, you know, being a wandering mystic who has nothing, right? Mm. Uh, or I want to have the experience of being a mogul who has a lot in life. And so these are in the same way that you might choose to play different characters, inside different video games, inside our great game, what I call the great simulation, there are so many different storylines and at different times, right? Now, perhaps, you know, during World War II, a, a much larger percentage of the population got to play that particular game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, 
which is serious with me. All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. And by the way, Riz, for the first time in known history, and I used this allegory to Alex during the pandemic, I, I said that for the first time in known history, I said, imagine that different countries or places on Earth are different video games. I actually used intuitively that metaphor. I said, <laughs> so some have been playing Sims, some have been playing this, that. But for the first time, it's like one overarching video game is descending upon us and forcing itself upon everyone at the same time. Obviously, the pandemic, right? Right. We've never had anything like yeah, There's always been a zone on the earth where you could flee to. Whatever it is, you didn't like what was going on. But now we're all stuck in this reality at the same time together. And I said, that's pretty scary because it's, it's like, it's like end times kind of scenario. It's like, why is this game now gobbling up all the others and rendering those rules, uh, obsolete, so to speak? You see what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and within games, you know, we have this idea of, you know, you have these overarching seasons <laughs> yeah. and storylines, yeah. right, where all the players have to get involved in this storyline because it's a part of the plot. And, uh, you know, and I think that's a great metaphor that you mentioned to Alex. I mean, with the pandemic, it, because we're so interconnected now, too, mm. right? Uh, I mean, there's obviously the nature of transmissibility, but there's also the fact that people are traveling so much. And, yeah. you know, uh, there was a an estimate that uh, and this was a few years ago now, probably around 2000 or 90s or the last time all the nations were so interconnected in terms of economies was just before World War One, right? Mm. Um, at least the, 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 you know, the major powers. And, you know, that led to this, this kind of what they call the Great War, which really was only limited to certain locations compared to World War Two or compared to the pandemic, yeah. you know, which were, were wider theaters. They had different theaters in this overall. It's interesting that even that term is used, theaters and playing. And, um, you know, some people say, well, you know, by talking about it as a simulation, you're minimizing the suffering and the things that happen. I say not necessarily. <laughs> That's not. And in fact, you know, Yogananda, who lived during World War One, you know, asked his his master because he saw these reels of people dying, newsreels in the theater, and he said, you know, what's going on here? Look at all this suffering. And he said, well, yes, but imagine that it was a movie. And for the actors in the movie, the suffering has to be there or the roles aren't real. They're not really experiencing those emotions. But for the actor who's playing that role, they're fine outside of the outside of the game. And so, you know, if you view it as an opportunity to experience and to improve yourself, I think that brings a slightly different perspective to when bad things happen. Uh, you know, we all have bad things happen in our lives, whether it's illness of a loved one or ourselves or something in our business. Everybody has something to struggle with. Otherwise, life would be meaningless and boring. You're right. That's exactly right. And in The Matrix, if you remember in the sequel, they said that this droll version of reality, right? The Matrix, which yeah. was kind of like 1999. They said that wasn't the first version of The Matrix. 
There was an earlier version where everybody was happy and everything was great, but the human mind refused to accept that as reality. Because paradise was boring? Yeah, because paradise was boring. <laughs> and so it was, or, or it was almost like you needed the struggle, just like mm. what makes a novel versus yeah. a vignette. This is something I learned in, in, in writing class a long time ago, right? Because mm. I would just write a story and they said, well, that's a vignette. Nothing, nothing bad happened. Nobody's struggling against anything, right? Mm. So, well, you have to have like some aim or in a movie or a, a novel or, you know, that's not just a slice of life, but they're struggling for something. Otherwise, the story just isn't interesting to people, right? And I think that that may be true of life as well, that it's just not as interesting. And the same is true for for uh, heroes, uh, because everybody loves a flawed hero. That's like yeah. the basic concept uh, of Joseph Campbell, the hero's journey. So if the hero is perfect from the outset, people tend to dislike that guy. That's like someone, we, you know, we're playing, you and me are playing and we're sweating. And, oh, you know what I achieved? Look, I have a hack I can share it with you. But then comes a guy who's done with the game. He's, he, he already mastered it, right? right. And he comes in. To, in the game to us and oh look at what I can do <laughs> and we get jealous and irritated right but come one of us who is flawed who hasn't developed perfection and we see him struggle and reach that end we are rooting for him yeah. right we identify with him because he's like us he raised himself up from the level one to the end level if you see what I mean so you're yeah. very right but there's another thing here, and you mentioned UFOs. And by the way, Jacques Vallée wrote in Messenger of Deception. So a brilliant analysis okay. that I've never seen in the UFO field. And many, and, and to this day, people are ignoring it. But he did a, a basic analysis and he found out, I forgot the details now. People who are interested can hear my uh, interview with um, uh, Mr. Nick Cook about, uh, yeah, my interview with Nick Cook. <laughs> and you will hear at the end a quote is from his book, uh, Valet's book. And what he does is he shows that if UFOs were physical visitors, it would, they would visit us like so many times. This is basic statistics, uh, conservative statistics that he's made. Uh -huh. That they will uh, basically visit us, I don't remember how much, but once every minute, or something like that. <laughs> so it's just impossible. So he says something is going on here. He's not saying they're not physical. And he's not saying they're entirely metaphysical. But he's saying these aren't just like, oh, accidental discoveries of something weird going on. Right. There's something more. But you have, uh, I know, a perspective on how we could explain UFOs in this reality. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's interesting, you know, you brought up Jacques Vallée. So I, I actually chatted with him a bit about this uh, before I had written the book. And some of the things that he told me gave me some interesting food for thought in how the simulation hypothesis might apply. And he said that there were instances where he interviewed people where one person saw the UFO and the person standing right next to them did not see it, right? Mm. And so that implies a, some type of subjectivity to what's actually happening, even though to the person that saw it, it was physically there. And, and that ties directly to my analogy earlier uh, about a level 90 player versus a level 5 player, although it doesn't necessarily mean one is more advanced than the other. It means one has signed up for that quest or experience and they 
can see it on their screen. Because remember, we're both rendering reality on our computer, which might be our physical brain or some other uh, agent of consciousness that is plugging us into the simulation. Right. And so it's, it's very easy. And we do this in video games all the time. It's very easy to show something to one player and not show it to the other. Mm. Uh, but then, you know, he told me another story, which is a really interesting one. I don't know if he's told it uh, on other shows, but uh, I don't think it was a secret. So but he said he went to investigate a UFO sighting in Northern California. And if you've ever been to, or maybe it was Oregon, it was on the, the Northwest corner of the U.S., and if you've ever been there, you'll notice there are these very large uh, evergreen trees, mm. uh, probably similar to some places in Scandinavia, in Scandinavia yeah. I would think. <laughs> yeah. And he said there was a clearing in the trees, and this is where the UFO was supposed to have landed. And so, you know, many people came out to interview these guys about this sighting. And then, you know, at the end of, like, normal interview, he said, there's one thing I don't understand. Uh, he, he said, you said it came down at a 45-degree angle and it landed here. And I, I forget the exact story. Maybe there were some physical marks where they said they thought it landed. Mm. Uh, so they were saying it was a physical thing that actually landed there. He said, but if it came down at 45 degrees, and he looked over at the large trees right next <laughs> to mm. that spot, he said they would have had to go through the trees <laughs> to land at that angle. They said, yeah, that's what happened. But we didn't want to say that to the other UFO investigators because they would think we're crazy. <laughs> crazy enough to, <laughs> to see the UFO, yeah. So it's almost as if it was a holographic right. image, right, or a physical projection that was able to cut through what we would consider physical objects. And then by the time it got to clearing, it had fully materialized, right? right. And at that point, and this happens in video, if you played video games, you know, while you're still rendering, especially on a slow computer, uh-huh. you'll notice you can walk through walls, you can walk yeah. through trees, you know, things are... Like a ghost. As a ghost, but you're still being rendered. And then finally, mm. when everything is rendered on your local computer, you can no longer do that. Mm. You can't walk through trees, you can't walk through the walls, because now they're solid. But when it was first rendering on your computer, all those rules weren't there. And so... Uh, not wait, wait, wait a minute, more famous is bugs, you know? And bugs means, okay, it's actually possible that this... Ha- oh, look, I can go... You don't need to go through the door. I know a bug. Go through the wall there. Oh, right. There's a weakness. Oh, right, right. right? Yeah, there are Yeah, there are these little Easter eggs or other like winter bugs or other tricks. But, but those games, those who run the game, they can do it all the time because they know they would be the UFOs, Carno. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So they know the rules mm. and they know where there are spots where they can materialize or not materialize. Uh, and that may be, in fact, why we have certain UFO hotspots, right? Mm. And I mean, if you talk to people, I mean, I've talked to people in this world, and if you take what they say seriously, right, which not a lot of scientists do, but, you know, I, I remember one group telling me they were in the Mojave uh, Desert, or they were, sorry, in Joshua Tree Park, which is in Southern California, which is like a desert-like area. He said, I was looking up at the sky, and there was nothing there. And slowly this thing kind of materialized out of nowhere, Mm. And then it was a physical object. Mm. And then it went, you know, slowly like a cloud and then it disappeared again. But it was no cloud. It was a metallic object from their perspective. Mm. It was an actual craft from their perspective. And so there are these what what Valet calls the, the, almost like an absurd element right, <laughs> to these sightings. Uh, and, that, and, and, and I think that in the world where the physical world is not physical at all but it objects are being rendered based on some information these things can make a lot of sense including movements 
like the Tic Tac video and yeah. others where something's yeah. one place and suddenly zips to another place. Mm. It almost looks like if you had a, a flashlight, right? Uh, and you were or, or laser in one part of the sky and you just jump to the other part of the sky. Right. right. It almost looks like it's a holographic projection of some type, but then you can't deny that it's actually real once it starts interacting with the physical world. Yeah, yeah it's like the poor cats when we use a laser pen, you know, and they try to change that. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly, yep. It's just but like Valet says something else that's interesting too. He says that uh, very often these phenomenons that we term UAP, UFO, are perceived differently dependent on the observer. Mm-hmm. Now, this is interesting because he's talking about th- that we are uh, exposed to a phenomenon that we are not wired to understand or to perceive in its pure form. <laughs> Hence, we need to project. And others have pointed to also that it's not just that that happens on an individual basis, but you can see it collectively too through generations. Like what the Bosley talks about, how UFO seems to, and, and Richard Dolan too, how UFO seems to develop in fashion, you know? What's, oh, I see. Okay. You know, in the steampunk time, they would look more <laughs> like what we were used to then, right? In the, uh, during the war. Yep, like airships, right? Yeah. They were called airships right. in the 1890s. And, uh, the ladies. Yeah, and they are kind of advancing more and more. That's suspicious. And then you mentioned a well-known point, of course, but you mentioned it to Alex that we may also have interpreted them before the age of technology. We may have projected religious images to them because that's that's the language, that's the understanding tools we had back then. So it's Virgin Mary, it's an angel, whatever. Yep. So that kind of, the simulation theory explains that too. Right, because it gives the ability to project an object. You know, you, you, you based on information, you can project it in whatever format yeah. is acceptable to the people in that sim. You know, so there was a there's a very popular uh, or relatively popular virtual world called Second Life that came out back in 2003, 4, 5. Yeah, I heard about that. And yeah. 2007 was when the height of its popularity, so everybody was checking it out in Silicon Valley. So I spent a lot of time in it and they would have these, you know, these individual modules or sims uh, that, you know, one was a Star Trek sim. One was, you know, Conan, the barbarian fantasy mm-hmm. uh, sim. One was, uh, I don't know, some strange BDSM sim. One was you know, Van Gogh. Like, you could actually walk into, like, a Van Gogh painting, right? Right. Um, and so all these sims were set up by people. But, like, when my avatar went into, say, the Star Trek one, you know, I looked around and all the other avatars had their Star Trek uniforms on, right? Mm. And I could go and buy that avatar outfit and change my avatar and I could start looking like a Klingon or some alien, right? It was like you can change your avatar to look like whatever is appropriate mm. in that simulation. And, you know, I, I think that we will interpret it a certain way. And it does seem, and, and Valet has been a big proponent of this, that the technology presents itself, not just, you mentioned the fashion, but also to the level that we can understand. Yeah. And so within our dominant paradigm at the time, so when our dominant paradigm was religious, they were presented as angels and the Virgin Mary. And there's a a great professor from University of North Carolina, Diana Walsh Pasoka, and she wrote a book called uh, American Cosmic UFOs, Technology and Religion. She's actually a professor of religion. Mm. And she says, if you look at the Fatima sighting, which occurred in Portugal 
I think it was, I don't remember exactly what year, but it was in the early 19th century. 1800s, I think. I, I think it was, was it 1800s or maybe early 1900s, somewhere around that time. Early 90s, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think it was either before World War One or right around World War One. Yeah, yeah, could be. And and she said that, well, they interpreted it as the Virgin Mary, right? Mm. <laughs> uh, because they saw a woman. Mm. Now, the woman never said she was the Virgin Mary, right? Mm. But that was the, and, and that there was this phenomenon in the sky, and there were these lights, and 70,000 people saw something weird. And she said, today, we would interpret that as a mass sighting of some type of UFO or some type of alien or something, right? Right. Uh, and back then, it was interpreted within the cultural context of, of that time. Mm. Uh, and, and, and we're seeing similar things today where there's odd happenings. There's a, there's a popular TV show on the History Channel here called uh, The Skinwalker Ranch. It's about yeah. this ranch in Utah, which has all these weird anomalies. Yeah, famous. And, and they're kind of interpreting those as, oh, this is a UFO, or this is this, or this is that. But we're using our understanding of the universe. Mm. Uh, and, and I call this a little bit like the, the superhero uh, world. Like uh, superheroes came about in, in Western culture, at least in the 1900s, when we started to understand there were other planets. And so when mm. we wanted to give superpowers to like Superman, who's one of the first superheroes, we say, oh, he's from another planet. Right? Mm. Now, you couldn't have said that back in the 1850s, right? Mm. Nobody knew about these planets uh, in, in the general population. Mm. But by the 1950s, pretty much 10-year-olds knew that there were you know, these yeah. planets in the solar system and there are other stars and maybe there's planets there. So it wasn't an absurd thing to say. <laughs> it fit within the understanding and the technological... That's uh, true. And I think Superman was in the 30s, even before the war, yes. which makes more sense because in the 50s, people would think of little green men when they were thinking of the planets. The UFO phenomenon was well known. But in the 30s, it was less known. But the concept of other planets and life on other planets was there. I mean, we have the famous Orson Welles invasion uh, panic, right? right? That was before the war. So, so that makes sense that, oh, I imagine someone from a planet with a different gravity. Yeah, he could fly here, blah, blah, blah. So it makes total sense. But to your analogy, I think we say that if you were an admin or a super user, and you went into the Star Trek scenario, right? You would obviously have an avatar looking like that. But if you went into, let's say, the erotic room or space, then you would have an avatar looking like that. Yep. So that's how I can see these UFOs being uh, interpreted differently. Because it's still the super user or the admin com or the AI, maybe even the Smith guy. But they would have, you know, when in Rome. <laughs> <laughs> right, when in virtual Rome. Right? Yeah, look as the Romans. Yeah, that's right. Look like a Roman. And, and think about it. If you went into a sim of Rome, uh, an ancient simulation, right? Uh -huh. what's called an ancestor simulation, to fit in, you would try to look like someone from that time period. Uh -huh. So, uh, and that world, you know, and, and so... That, yeah, maybe the system wouldn't even allow you to look like anything else, right? You couldn't just take your your Star Trek avatar into the ancient Rome uh, world. Right, right. And that brings up this idea of also uh, multiple simulations, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, I've talked about them as different regions within, say, Second Life, but, you know, you could have other simulations where beings look differently. And, and this gets back to your earlier point, I think you made it a while ago, about... Is it possible that when something gets to a certain complexity, you can play, you, you can you can actually inhabit that, 
right? So is it possible that there are intelligent, you know, water species? Well, there are here, like dolphins, right? Mm. <laughs> They're supposedly very intelligent, but but more akin to what we would think of as sort of technologically intelligent uh, uh, species on another planet. Uh, or it could just be another simulation that's running. And, you know, people do report uh, when when they talk about past lives, you know, they talk about different places, right? Many of us, when we talk about past lives and people do regressions, they'll remember just the ones that were on Earth or a similar planet. Mm. But every now and then, you'll get ones that talk about... Uh, and, and this is where the, the uh, UFO alien contact subject intersects with the reincarnation subject, right? Okay. Uh, I was at a UFO conference the other, uh, I don't know, five years ago, back when I was sort of actively investigating into this area. Mm-hmm. And they, they had a panel and they had you know, these people come on and they said they were hybrids. Now, what did that mean? They were saying there were some hybrid of aliens and humans. Well, my interpretation being kind of in the modern world is, you know, you have a hybrid meaning a, a genetic, you know, uh, combination, right? You have, say, maybe a human uh, father and a and an alien mother, or some combination, right? <laughs> These days, mm-hmm. but some of them were not talking about that kind of hybrid. They were saying, "No, I came from another something, right? Universe, planet, something that was very different. But now I'm inhabiting this body, and so I'm here to tell you what it was like in the other place." Now, those people would. In, in the normal world, if you said that to your psychiatrist, like they would lock you up, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? <laughs> mm-hmm. But there are people who remember being in other places <clears throat> and they have very detailed memories and very detailed explanations of these sort of less physical worlds than ours. And so, you know, this gets into a whole nother concept. Like, is it possible to jump simulations <laughs> or to be in different- Yeah, what about dreams or astral travels? How, how would we make that fit? Yeah, so dreams uh, is is an interesting topic and probably one of the the most uh, pontificated topics in human history. (laughs) Because uh, there are probably more books have been written on dreams over the years than (laughs) most other subjects, just Mm -hmm. because everybody dreams, right? Even people that don't remember their dreams, dreams. Mm. And you go back to the Bible, etc. And so dreams are what psychologists and other people call overdetermined, which means that Within a dream, you have more, you might have a symbol that represents more than one thing. And whenever people say dreams are for this or dreams are for that, this is the purpose of dreams. Uh, usually I like to say yes (laughs) to all of those scenarios. Right. Because the materialists and, and even the computer scientists would say, we have a process that's called garbage collection. Right. Mm -hmm. And what that means is when you run a program for a period of time, what happens is there's all this random data and memory that's no longer needed, right? There's no way to access it anymore. Mm. But that memory is being used. And so what happens, this is why in the old days, if you ran a program for too long, it would just crash and you just had to reset it (laughs) because it would like eat up random memory. And so there's a process in computer science called garbage collection where you would go through and you would release all of this unnecessary stuff, right? Mm. Uh, And it's like cleaning up the memory, or the memory of the computer in this case, right? And so there does seem to be a garbage collection element of dreams where we are recycling 
like, you know, I was watching Stranger Things. Like, I watched three episodes in a row, and that night, the characters in the in one of my dreams were from Stranger Things, right? <laughs> that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't been watching three episodes in a row. Right, right. But, so that's like the more materialist explanation, right? Is, yeah. is that dreams are a way to clean up our computer system so that we can process. Fragments from the day, yeah. That's right. Fragments from the day. Mm. Now, it turns out that also ties very much to what some of the ancient Buddhist traditions, particularly the Tibetan Buddhists, have been saying about dreams. Uh, well, I mean, first of all, there's the big metaphor, right, which is that life is like a dream. Yeah, and, and falling asleep is called a little death. Right, the little death. And mm. and the, the term Buddha literally means awake, right? Mm. It means to wake up. And so there's a whole aspect of, of Tibetan dream, of Tibetan yoga, where they talk about dream yoga, where you are That's learning. Right. Lu lucid dreaming in, in modern speak. In modern speak, it's lucid mm. dreaming, but, you know, lucid dreaming in modern speak is, hey, you can have some fun when you learn to control your dreams. Yeah. Uh, but they had a specific purpose, a specific spiritual purpose in right. mind, which is that if you can wake up within the dream, then you can learn to do other things, such as manipulate things in your dream state. And, and you know, some of us have done this, right? Some, uh, some people, it's very easy. Some people, it's very difficult. See, most people, it's very difficult. But you know, every month or so, I'll have a lucid dream. And there was a period of time when I used to try to have these dreams where I'll realize, oh, this is a dream. Mm. And we will have uh, what's called a lucidity test. And the lucidity test tells you that you're actually in a dream and not in... Type uh, watching your hand, count the fingers. Yeah, that's one, mm. right? Uh, for me, it's uh, because I never remember to do that. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it has to be something you have to remember to do. Right. That's the hard part. Yeah. It's almost like there's this weird wall between the dream state in the waking state and, yeah. and it's hard to like you can remember your dreams when you first wake up but then later in the day That's if you right. didn't write them down yeah. it's unlikely you'll remember many details you might remember a, a fragment or two unless you're super impressed by the dream like life-changing paradigm experience that's right yeah. yeah and i call those dreams of clarity mm. right where, where you have clear messages from the dream and, that, and then you have precognition dreams right you can see what's happening that's right so coming back to the lucidity test in my case it's a flying so oh. if i jump up and I fall back down, then I'm probably in physical reality. But if I float, and then I go and I actually fly, guess what? <laughs> you can only do that in dreams. <laughs> yeah, I can only do that in dreams. But it's it's but it's something that it, in most dreams I don't even realize I can do, and nobody else does either, right? Uh. But. Oddly enough, this happened to me last night, right? <laughs> where, okay. Yeah. Where I, I decided this was a dream because there was something strange, something odd. Yeah. Right? There was there was. Like what Philip K. Dick calls these sense of deja vu or something that's just off, right? Something that's changed. Um, mm. in, in Philip K. Dick's world, when, when I talked to his wife, he said that she, she told me that he came up with this idea because he thought the bathroom had a light switch and now it was a chain that you had to pull. And he mm -hmm. goes, I've done this a hundred times. Or maybe it was the other way around. Maybe it was the chain and now it was a switch. And he goes, something has changed. Something odd is here. And dreams, usually they have to be much odder than that for you to recognize. I see. The routine was so deeply worked into him in his subconscious that that translated actually to the dream. That was enough to make him suspicious and thereby realize. And then he came up with this whole idea that somebody is changing variables and rerunning the whole simulation, right? So, right, uh, right. But, but so last night this happened and I was with someone else. And so I was trying to tell them, no, you can fly too. And they were like, no, no, I can't. And so I had to like pick them up and... 
jump off the balcony together. And of course, I already knew I could fly, so I wouldn't have jumped off the balcony in, in, in real life. But And then we were flying around uh, over the river or wherever we were. But So that's a kind of superpower, right? Yeah. So now you've got this analogy. And there's a whole set of these superpowers within the dreams and within Tibetan dream yoga that as you learn to manipulate and change objects, uh, many of which I've never been able to do, but some sometimes every now and then it seems like we can do it if we set our intention to it. And then they use that as a metaphor to say, well, if you can wake up within the dream and recognize it not as reality, now carry that awareness with you to the physical world. Perhaps you can also remember there's another part of you that is not in this physical world, that this is all a dream. This is an illusion. Uh, and that that is, you know, the the, the point of, of dream yoga which is not so much for enjoyment, but it's to wake up. Yeah. Uh, so now that gets to another aspect of dreaming, right? So there are so many different aspects of dreaming, and you brought up this precognitive dreams, where sometimes we will have a dream uh, of a situation, and then at some point in the future, we, it looks just like that. And that, that's happened to me many times, where the next day something will happen that will remind me of that. Uh, and, and so, you know, that's also like a, practice run right so mm. if, if you imagine we were in a simulation and you're like okay planning which of the things you want to do the next day or the next week or the next month right mm. you might scan those images yeah you might simulate scenarios exactly so dreams are little simulations in my opinion right? mm. and little simulations uh in fact I started this whole journey by saying that I, I came up with these 10 stages of the, the road to the simulation point, which included things like brain, computer interfaces, AI, um, you know, uh, realistic uh, virtual landscapes, all of these things that we can't fully do yet in our technology. But the reality is we already have the technology to create simulations that we think are 100% real. They're populated with NPCs, sometimes with other players uh, that we completely forget that there's a reality outside of the simulation. It's called dreaming. We do it every night. Right? <laughs> the, the biological technology is already there. It's built into us. And so that's yet another aspect of dreaming. You know, yet another aspect is what the Tibetans call karmic traces, right? They say that dreams are ways to spin off or burn off, if you will, the smaller karma, like there's little karma. Right. <laughs> like I was watching Stranger Things and it made such an impression on my mind that before it becomes like a real karmic thing I have to actually go through, it just gets released in the dream state, you know? Mm. Mm. So that's yet another way. Uh, you, you could also argue maybe that dreaming is just, you know, peeking into the world above our simulation, which it probably is very different from ours, right? And, and besides, we only remember fragments anyway. Uh, that's right. And we, we oftentimes, like even a dream I had last night, I, I couldn't remember what happened first, right? Mm. And what happened second, right? So there's this weird, and yet at the time, it felt like it was very coherent mm. while I was going through the dream. But when I try to think back, and so it, it very much could be that we put our avatars to sleep, Right, mm. we are outside. We are then playing scenario. Yeah, we need to charge them. We, we we need to charge them. They can go forever, right? Yeah, exactly. It could be that the biological technology we use is such that it needs to recycle, yeah. uh, you know, many things, and then that may just be an artifact of how this specific world is built. Maybe you don't need dreams in 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 other simulations. Right. Interesting. So yeah, the next I have um, a very interesting topic 
which fits hand in glove. Now, okay, so I've always wondered about something that uh, I think I first encountered it in, in some in different esoteric traditions. At least the Theosophists have a word for it called fuhat. And that's that they've always said that when you move through life or through the universe... You know, the old, uh, actually, let's start with that. The old saying, if a tree falls in a forest, etc., right. right? The Rosicrucian said 100 years ago, no, it doesn't make a sound. If there's not consciousness there to experience it. And in line with that, it's also that reality only happens around consciousness. And this has been yeah. very difficult to reconcile with science, at least up to quantum physics, etc. But... As soon as we invented games, bam, we have the perfect parallel. Can you go into that? Yeah, absolutely. And this was one of the aspects of simulation theory that really drew me in was that when I looked at what the physicists have been telling us all along, that the reality isn't what we think it is, that you can really see the analogy <clears throat> between video games and how they work and quantum physics so if you go back to when i started playing video games in the 1980s and you were to say hey can we create a full 3d world that has lots of cities and continents and render all those pixels and the answer would be no we can't we don't have that much computing power right that's just too much uh to keep track of and to render uh, onto the screen. And so what happened between then and now? I mean, today we have these multiplayer games with millions of players. And what happened was something called conditional rendering. So that I only have to render on my screen the pixels that are related to what my avatar can see. And you only have to render on your screen the avatars, uh, the, the vision of the avatar that you're playing and the immediate area. Okay. There are some listening who who's not that familiar with, you know, video games. What, what, what you're actually saying is that when you see a video game, it doesn't mean that everything you see is there all the time. Of course, it's ones and zeros anyway, but it's that the areas in the game you're not in, they exist potentially. And as soon as your avatar enters it, then it manifests on the screen, right? Because many people right. don't understand render and all that stuff. So, yeah, go on. Yeah, that's right. And so it only shows up on your screen when your avatar goes into that room or that part of the world. Mm. Now, the world may be much bigger, but that's just information that hasn't been drawn yet. Mm. In the same way that the file, uh, uh, there's a, uh, a scientist at, uh, uh, in, in California named Donald Hoffman who uses the uh, metaphor of the the file system or the user interface, right? So if I'm looking at my desktop on my Mac, I see all these files, right? Then they may have like a blue icon or a green icon. They don't really exist. They're just information down below as right. ones and zeros. And But they get rendered so that I can understand it in this way. And so, uh, you know, within video games, the way we represent 3D worlds uh, is only draw or render that which can be seen. And so when I looked at what quantum physics, what quantum physics and quantum mechanics have been telling us, uh, it, it's a very strange thing, right? And it led Niels Bohr, who's one of the, the founders of, uh, 
of, of quantum mechanics to say that if you know if if you're not surprised by this, then you haven't fully understood it. <laughs> it's very strange. I mean, Schrodinger sealed that case, didn't he? <laughs> yes, that's right. And so the the most famous example of of quantum indeterminacy came from Schrodinger, and he actually came up with this example of the Schrodinger's cat. Because he thought the whole thing was ridiculous. He wanted to show that it was ridiculous. <laughs> but now it's the best. Oh, so that was his starting point. That was his starting ah. point. He was like, so uh, the scenario goes like this. There's a cat in a box with some radioactive material and some poison. And the radioactive material has a 50% chance of you know, spinning off a, uh, a photon or a neutron or whatever. whatever. It, it, but there's a 50% chance that it will activate the poison mm. within the first hour. And a 50% chance that it won't. And so the question is, is the cat alive or dead after an hour? And common sense would tell us that, okay, the cat is either alive or dead. We just don't know because we haven't looked in the box. But the reality is already there, right? That's how our Mm. kind of ordinary thinking about the world and classical physics would go. But what quantum mechanics tell us and and, and why Schrodinger's cat is interesting is – Basically, it says that the cat is both alive and dead, that there are two different versions of reality, two different probable realities, what's called a superposition of states, right? So if you think of one state as alive and one state as dead, that's two states. Mm. A superposition of those states includes all of those states. So there's both possible states. And that it's not until someone observes, they look inside the box, that one of those becomes reality. So we see the cat as alive or dead. But until the point when anyone has looked in the box, both of those states or probabilities still exist. Um, and, and that is often called the collapse of the probability wave, down from multiple possibilities down to one possibility. Mm. Now, this is very strange because uh, we're not used to thinking of the world that way. We're used to thinking of one possible reality. Yeah, we think if, if that decision was made... There's no escaping that damn there's no, outcome, is what people think. There's no escaping it if you are somehow cohered <laughs> with that observation. And this is where it gets even weirder. Yeah. Uh, and so, but let, let's come back to that. Yeah. Because there's a computer science analogy that might make that, you know, more understandable as well. Yeah. But, but the basic idea is that the whole world exists as a set of probabilities. And it's only when somebody observes them, this is called the observer effect. Now, there's some... Uh, there's some uh, disagreement about what does an observer mean, right? But is it just a measurement? Is it a conscious observer? Now you get into different physicists saying different things. But but the basic idea is that when there is a type of observer or a type of observation happens, that becomes physical reality. And until that happens, everything is just a probability. Well, it turns out Princeton egg. Princeton egg have demonstrated it. What's that? Sorry. The Princeton egg experiments. Yes, that's right. That's right. There were some experiments in Princeton, and there's a lot of different experiments. And the reason they, you know, they originally got on this was because of this idea of light, um, photons or electrons traveling through two slits, right? There's a right. double split. And, you know, you would say, well, common sense says the, the particle has to go through the left slit or the right slit. It can't go through both. But they saw that the, the electromagnetic radiation exhibited the properties of a wave. And a wave creates an interference pattern, which is kind of like the probabilities of where these photons would land. Um, but but leaving that that aside, because I think for some people the double slit experiment gets confusing. 
um, what's the purpose of this, right? No one really understands what it means. Mm. And there's been two major interpretations, one of which is the Copenhagen interpretation, which is that the probability wave comes down to a single reality. Uh, and then the other is the multiverse explanation. But the reason why video games are, and simulation is so interesting is that that is how we optimize, right? In, in, in computer science, it's mostly about optimization, right? How do you make it so you don't have to draw everything? How do you make it so you can just draw the pieces that can be seen? Well, that turns out... To, to save computer power, right? Is to save computing power. Mm. And this was the case, like, back in the days of the Apple II and 8-bit computers. You know, they had very little memory, and everything had to be programmed in such a way as to save uh, computing power. Uh, and so, you know, with video games, video games have driven a lot of technology over the years. Uh, like, uh, you know, GPUs, which are used today, graphics processing units are used for AI, cryptocurrency mining, like Bitcoin. You know, they came about, you know, as graphics processing units. So they were, they were trying to render things quickly. And so there are, there are many things in computing today which were driven, you know, by video games, um, including this whole idea of 3D worlds and 3D modeling and rendering of, of, of things. Uh, and, and so, you know, you can see very much that if you, if you adopt the idea that quantum indeterminacy is an optimization method, uh, so that you only have to render things when someone's around, uh, then it makes more sense. I mean, you have kind mm -hmm. of a, a framework or a reason, just like, when we said, well, why would rocks be falling out of the sky? Well, it's only when you adopt uh, a worldview that says there are all these other things out there beyond the sky. Mm. When you adopt that framework, then it actually makes sense that you could have rocks dropping from the sky. Until then, it's just a complete mystery. Mm. It makes no sense at all. Now, another thing we do in computer science is when I go into a room, we will cache the pixels of that room so that if you go into that room, it's much quicker and easier for you to get in there right to to see what i saw and so we can there's this idea of coherence of particles and this ties to you know quantum entanglement and stuff which gets into a much longer discussion but but the, but there's this idea of caching c a c h e where you store the things that somebody has seen so that you know the next time somebody else looks at it it's still there mm. right or it's very easy to draw you have to just copy the the pixels they've already been rendered so when we say information, we're talking about ones and zeros, but when we say pixels, we're talking about an actual 3D scene, right? That shows like a little, you know, a desk and a chair and a bookshelf, right? Mm -hmm. That's like a, a rendering of the pixels of what that stuff would look like. Um, and so that was one of the major reasons, you know, why I thought the simulation hypothesis is suggested by physics, uh, because when you think about it from a computational point of view, and, and I like to say computer science is eating all the other sciences in many ways, right? <laughs> we have this idea of digital physics now. And there was a, a famous 20th century physicist named John Wheeler who you know, had a famous phrase that said, it from bit. He said, everything that is an it, a physical object, is actually comes from information. The only way to understand these things we call particles, when you get right down to it, physicists keep looking for this thing called matter physical matter, and they can't find it. Mm. Uh, you know, molecules exist, but they're not necessarily right next to each other. They're space. You look at the atoms, and the atoms are 99% space, and then you go into the subatomic particles. <laughs> you just keep, it's like those Russian dolls, yeah. like the nested dolls. And there's nothing there at the bottom. Right? Mm. <laughs> but what 
the physicists have concluded is that there is information, there are properties of these things that define what a particle is. And that is why uh, that ties very closely to this idea of bits, like the smallest unit in computing is a bit, a zero or a one, uh, is, is a bit of information. And so when we talk about sending data over uh, the wire, like I'm over the air, like I'm communicating with you over the internet, we're sending these zeros and ones, and, and you can estimate the amount of information you need based upon the zeros and ones. So anyway, taking an, an information-based look at the physical universe, and there are now theories that, you know, just like we used to say, energy is neither, uh, uh, you know, matter is neither destroyed or, or energy is, is conserved. Uh, now there's this idea that information isn't destroyed, that something happens to that information, and you always have to have a conservation of that information. And so, you know, the more I looked into, like, the fundamentals of physics, when you ask those questions, the more I realized that there was a group of physicists who believed that the world is information at its core. Um, and then there's other groups, not necessarily physicists, who believe that it's being rendered uh, for us, and it's only when you have conscious observation. Mm. And to me, that sounds a lot more like a video game than anything else. And that's how we play video games. Yeah. Uh, we all render our version of this information that's sitting somewhere out in the cloud. Yeah, but the same concept has also been pushed, uh, you know, by ancient philosophies. It's super interesting because most people think if if something is determined, like you, men you mentioned to Alex an example with a star that... You said yeah, so. so this is called the cosmic delayed choice experiment, right? Mm. And so so we've talked about this in terms of the present, right? Which is the cat, when we look at the cat, the cat is alive or dead. Mm. But it, this also applies to our past. Exactly. And, and so this is really confusing. And future. And the future, right? <laughs> yeah. Because today is just the past from the future, right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, depending on how you look at it, uh, there's this thing called the, the delayed cosmic, the cosmic delayed choice experiment. And the idea is that suppose light is coming from a very distant object, like a billion light years away. Suppose it's a quasar or something. And in between that and us, there's a gravitationally large object like a black hole or a galaxy. Now, in very simple terms, the light from that distant object, which is say a billion years, uh, light years away, and this uh, black hole, which is say only one million years light years away, so it's much closer to us. Right? Mm. Uh, the light from the object has to go either to the left or to the right, and we can set up telescopes here on Earth to figure out if it went left or right, right? But obviously, if that light originated a billion years ago and then it, you know, went around the black hole a million years ago, that decision about whether to go left or right would have had to have been made when. A million years ago because it's a million light years away mm. because the light will take that long to reach us now what wheeler proposed and has been confirmed now in in, in various experiments in the delayed choice experiment is that that decision about whether to go left or right is not made until that light is observed by our telescopes mm. right mm. so now that doesn't make any sense because it means that the decision about whether to go left or right was made was made actually today, but it's a decision that would have had to have occurred a million years ago. Right. So that brings up this whole idea of what is time, mm. what is the past, uh, and actually Schrödinger himself brought up this idea with this idea uh, by calling them 
multiple simultaneous histories. This is not very well known, but but he did bring it up in like the 1940s, where there are two histories, right? In this case, one where it went left and one went right. And in a sense... Yeah, we would call it timelines, right? Yeah, we would call them timelines. Uh, yeah. There are multiple parallel timelines, which then... So we into- kind of we kind of invoke a particular timeline when we participate with our consciousness. That's right. Yeah. When we participate with consciousness or observation or measurement, right? And even if it's just a measurement, somebody then has to observe that measurement, right? Because mm. the measurement could have gone either way, right? It could have been measured left. Exactly. So, so that, yeah, that would just be another doll, right? So if you really want to find the a- actual result, there has to be someone experiencing it. But that can make sense to people but you know most people don't live their lives like that unless you know in magic they always claim this that no no it doesn't matter you think they did yeah they decided last week if you got the job or not but you haven't checked your email yet no no positive thinking good karma bam you get it right yeah It, it, it gives a whole new concept to the idea of positive thinking and the point of accumulating good karma because you will progress no matter how bleak the world around you is, you can always open a better door, a better timeline, so to speak. If you're playing in a game because you're advancing, right, from same to a new level, but also in life. That's right. And and it may also lead to these strange situations. Like like I posited in, in my multiverse book that this is an interesting explanation for something called the Mandela effect. Where All right. A certain group of people remember a different timeline than other groups of people. So it's almost like we're merging together right. these different realities. And and that was coined, we won't get too much into this today, no. but that was coined because some people remember Nelson Mandela dying in prison yeah, yeah. in the 1980s. And of course, in our timeline, you can look it up, he, he, he got out of prison and he became president of South Africa and he died in, I think it was 2013 or so. And so it's this idea that different timelines may actually both exist. And, you know, Philip K. Dick actually thought the timeline he was writing about in his book, The Man in the High Castle, which was made into a very popular uh, series on Amazon a few years ago, uh, where the Japanese and the Germans won World War II. I mean, he came to believe that was a real timeline (laughs) that actually happened, right? An alternate timeline, if you will. But then that got either rewound or reset or stopped. And, And so that gets into other issues around quantum computing and parallel worlds. But I think, you know, the... There are elements of physics which seem to support this idea that that is a very non-materialistic idea that, you know, the world is composed of information Mm. uh, and that it gets rendered as people observe it. And then that gets sort of frozen between certain groups of people. Yeah. Now, uh, to finish this this point before we go to the last point, I also want to say just by the example you used earlier today, you said, look, we're not actually sitting and talking to each other, right? We're sending these signals digitally. But it's exactly that if you were here in a room with me, you would still not hear me. Or see me. Okay. I would still not hear or see you. What would happen when I'm talking? I have an idea uh, or a command, a will to formulate, to move my mo- mouth and muscles in certain ways and breath. And so that generates uh, sound waves, as we call them. But you're not actually hearing the real sound. What you're hearing is a translation of it because it reaches your eardrum. That translates it, that sense, uh, it's like a messenger in your ear. And he's saying, hey, we just got a message. Can you (laughs) bring it further into the brain, right? So it goes through the nerves. 
an interpretation of that sound and then another interpretation in the brain with a synaptic exchange and then you experience it as my voice right so and this is to go to Kant right who talks about the thing in itself and the thing in uh, me and so it's exactly the same actually as in computer we never perceive the actual things in themselves as they are yeah the the, the sources of these things we always see or perceive, better to say, no matter which sense, we perceive, uh, you would call it a rendering, but like a translation of a translation or an interpretation of an interpretation, etc. Yeah, that's, that's I, I think, very true. And, and that's one of the realizations. And that leads, you know, right back to the scene in The Matrix where Morpheus, who, as I mentioned, was named after the god of dreams, Neo, Keanu Reeves' character, asks him, is this real? They're in a room, a white room with with uh, this very uh, red embroidered uh, Victorian uh, uh, chair that he's sitting on, Mm. right? And he says, is this real? And he says, what is real? Right. Right? Reality is a series of electromagnetic signals that are being sent into your brain. So from that perspective, it's real. And that's why, you know, simply saying we're in a simulation doesn't mean that it's not real while we're in the simulation, right? That's right. That's right. That's like... Okay, so everything is an illusion. So if I throw myself over this mountain, the master says, yeah, you can, but to you, it's going to be real. So everything is an image, so to speak, in our mind. And those images are generated by, I would say, the numbers around us or, or the information around us, whether we're in an actual computer game or we're in life, which is obviously a parallel and you know some mystics would say well the reason is it's so close to to these games is because as above so below we cannot create anything that isn't already within our existence we can just imitate god it's right i mean we haven't had time to cover it today but you can confirm that most branches of science today recognize that the whole universe is holographic i mean in everything from biology to Astronomy, right? You see things repeating themselves, like sure. patterns in, in uh, big uh, cosmic bodies, very similar to patterns uh, in microcosmos. And I believe the simulation theory even explains weird concepts that we've talked about in the show before. For example, we talk about that things are endless, eternity, right? And eternity in time, okay, that's one concept. But in space, you have, for example, the idea... I know some Tibetans, had I had this as a kid, actually. I had weird uh, intuitions about this or just fantasy about it. But So if the universe is endless outwards, maybe it's endless inwards too. And that goes to, you know, create a simulation, which creates another simulation, which creates another simulation. Yeah. So if you, go, if you go into the microcosmos, it can be as endless as in a macro. But even one more weird thing is if I go in one direction, to the left. Now, eventually, some philosophers say, eventually you will come back out in the other direction. You know, from the right, we will never notice it because we are so local and this game is so huge. But that's the principle of this eternity. And people cannot compute that until they hear about the simulation theory and they understand how games work. Because there it will make yeah, sense. Yeah, in fact, if you if you remember, there was a very classic game called Asteroids. Mm-hmm. And in Asteroids, if you flew the ship out of the left side of the screen, it would appear on the right side of the screen. <laughs> right, case in point. <laughs> it's exactly what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. But 
in a way that you can easily visually see it. <laughs> right. So if it was immediate, then we could see it. Okay, uh, last question. I, I know you pressed for time, but yeah, this I... is so interesting. We have to touch it. Okay. There is also this concept that if... First off, there, there is the basic concept that life is a school and that we're not meant to evolve collectively, uh, like become, you know, uh, gods on earth, you know, create paradise on earth. What uh, rather the souls go through the bodies and then we move on to a new existence, you say a new level, right? Or maybe even a new game. Right. Uh, so that's that's a classical esoteric concept. But then you have also the concept, some, I think some Gnostics and others, they warn that, in fact, if everybody becomes enlightened, it will collapse. It will collapse existence. That we're not meant to. It's like a, it's like a protective layer or a suppressive layer. I mean, pick and choose uh, your sentiment. <laughs> but it will have the same effect, right? Yeah. And I believe this, even some scientists are starting to think like this now. Can you go a little into that? Yeah, well, that, that brings up, I think, the, the broader question that you, you asked earlier is, you know, what does it matter if it's a simulation? Mm. Uh, and what is the point of the simulation, right? Mm. Uh, and depending on what your answer is to that, you get different answers for what happens if everybody realizes that it's a simulation. So there was a philosophy professor, uh, I think two years ago now, I think his last name was Green, he wrote an article uh, in the New York Times, and he said, let's not try to find out if we're in a simulation. <laughs> and he said, because if we do, then the simulators might just decide to turn off the simulation at that point, right? Mm. Um, which means that would the simulation no longer be useful mm. uh, if people didn't believe they were in the real world, right? If you were in the middle of a war movie and, you know, the opponents are about to attack you and you turn to the screen and say, ah, the yeah. opponents aren't really there, right? <laughs> <laughs> What's the point of watching that movie? You just walk away, right? And, and I just have to parallel that with, look, we just started talking, you know, collectively in the world about the simulation theory. And what happens? Bam, pandemic. <laughs> Coincidence? <laughs> I think not. <laughs> right, something, something to get us to stop thinking about simulation theory <laughs> and remind either us. that or or the end is nigh. <laughs> That's true too. You can present it that way. And so, in uh, you know, my favorite simulation movie is actually not The Matrix. It's the movie we talked about before, uh -huh. uh, The Thirteenth Floor, mm. which is based on a novel. And in the novel, so in the movie, you know, they decide to shut down the simulation. Uh, one, because they were creating stacked simulations, which was using too much computing power. But but in the actual book, there was a whole other element that wasn't there in the movie, which was the point of the simulation. <laughs> and so in, in their world, in, in the normal world, quote unquote normal, in the book, they had all these guys who were surveyors who were doing market research. Right. And they would just stop you wherever you go when you walked out of work, like, like kind of like those annoying phone calls we yeah. used to get. I don't know if you get them in Europe, but oh, yeah. <laughs> we used to get them in the U.S. a mm -hmm. lot. Like you know, we, we were asking surveys, but they were like the world was full of surveys and they were employed by, you know, the government or with the surveys bureau. And it was like market research. That's how every company, every government, everybody did market research. And so they were creating a simulation. The reason they created the the. Uh, uh, the smaller simulation, if you will, or the embedded simulation, uh -huh. 
was so that they could figure out what people were thinking about things without needing all these guys who were sitting around doing market survey. <laughs> so the purpose of the simulation was to see how they would react to right. different things. And so they would put something out there and see how people reacted. And there are some other great short stories in science fiction about this as well, where you give people a scenario, but instead of just describing it, you put them in the middle of it and you see how they react. Uh, and in fact, that, you know, there are some people who think, like Jacques Vallée, who think that that's what UFOs are doing. Mm. They are presenting certain people in the simulation with certain images and watching how we react, not just first individually, but then as a civilization. Mm. Um, and so depending on the purpose of the simulation, if it's to basically run in the same way that we run simulations with what I remember earlier called computationally irreducible processes, mm -hmm. the only way to know what will happen is to actually simulate mm. it. Right? You can't just say, I think this will happen or that will happen. You have to run a simulation, not just once, but maybe 10 times. Uh, and so you could say, if you wanted to treat the pandemic that way, how will we react right, mm. to this type of virus? What, what behaviors will it encourage or discourage? And so, but if everybody realizes it's a simulation, then suddenly... Point is gone, right? No point anymore. Yeah, there's no point in running that simulation. It's time to reset right? Right. and rerun the simulation because you won't get realistic answers mm. right, mm. to what you're trying. So I think that question depends on the purpose of the simulation. Now, if the purpose is for all of us to learn and reach a certain level of enlightenment... Yeah, the, the New Age approach is that we should all awake. Right, we should all awake, eventually. And then everything will change to something better. Right. So that's the opposite of what this guy says. Yeah, this is the opposite, mm. <laughs> right? That that's the purpose. Mm. Maybe the purpose is to see if we can figure out mm. if it's a simulation and then we win the game, right? Yeah, but it would still be over, wouldn't it? <laughs> It would still be over, but depending on if it was uh, the NPC or the RPG version, right? Right. You know, either we'd wake up, right, outside and say, oh, that was fun. That's right. So if you're into the, that everything, there's no life, everything, even we are, are just um, like Agent Smith, then I can see it would be terrifying to crack, crack yes. it. And that's what the traditional academic view, not traditional, but let's say mainstream academic yeah. view of simulations. And that's why it's terrifying. Mm -hmm. Uh, but for those of us who subscribe more to, you know, like I said, they're not mutually exclusive. It's a spectrum. Yep. But if you believe the spectrum is tilted towards conscious beings who are playing roles, then it's okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, then we have other roles to play as well. But of course, I think it's not an either or, it's a both and. But it's kind of a dangerous road to go down because if people take this very literally, they will start to find out who are the Agent Smiths, right? <laughs> right, <laughs> and yes. And they, they will always burn the wrong people on the fire, I guarantee you that. <laughs> right, that's right. They'll start accusing people of being NPCs. Yeah, that's right. Oh, my ex, she's guaranteed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I had a friend of mine say, you know, oh, I think my husband is an NPC in my simulation. All these weird things are happening. Wow. I was like, well, let's not go that far. <laughs> you know? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let, let's treat everybody as a conscious player for now. That's right, that's right. That, that's how the game is rigged, right? So we have to relate to this yeah. as that. But when I watch the world today, you know, you can start wondering, hmm. Right, where certain agents placed right. <laughs> there to do certain things and cause certain chaos. Right. You know, you know, I love this discussion. And uh, typical, we press for time here. Let's just uh, close the whole ship with your book. We have to talk about that. We've been basically um, 
revolving around your first book, not your second. Could you tell us uh, what it's called? Uh, you mean the second book or the first? No, the first one we're talking about today. So the first book is called the Simulation Hypothesis, uh, and and subtitle. And the subtitle is an MIT computer scientist shows why AI, quantum physics, and Eastern mystics agree we are in a video game. That's right. And this book, in it, I mean, it's much bigger than our conversation today. Would you emphasize some topics that we didn't touch too much that they also can get in the book? Uh, sure. Well, you know, it's really more in depth. The first mm. third of the book traces our technology through these different stages uh, uh, up to the point where we could create our own simulations. Uh, so the first part is more of a technology type book. Uh, and so I get into a lot of detail about virtual reality, virtual characters, AI, downloadable consciousness, something we didn't talk about today. Mm. Can you download your consciousness into Silicon? Uh, and then in the second part, I talk you know, much more about the physics, which includes this conditional rendering, but a little bit about parallel universes and future selves and how the future could be communicating with us. And then uh, in the third part of the book, I talk much more about the different religious traditions, including the Western traditions mm. and how they relate to simulations. And I get into more detail on how all these different phenomena like OBEs, NDEs all relate to the simulation hypothesis. Uh, so it's kind of a comprehensive book that way. Mm. And and the last part, part four. And the last part really kind of brings it together, you know, both in terms of, you know, what is the evidence that's out there? What are some of the objections that people make? Uh, but really looks for evidence of computation. Uh, and then finally, you know, the we kind of wrap it up by, by talking about the great simulation, which would be our large multiplayer video game and, and what it means to, to be inside that. That's right. That's right. Super interesting book. People need to get that. And and we have more book readers in average. So hopefully some of them will enlighten themselves. Maybe, maybe help. I, I think we can promise them that they will go up at least one level in this game after reading that book. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yep. <laughs> you can level up at least one level. <laughs> but you know, we have no neophytes uh, in the game in this show. Mostly our advanced players listen maybe. to this show. So. Absolutely. And, and, and so maybe they just uh, can confirm what some of what they've already learned. <laughs> Yeah, and and get some new pointers. New, I mean, it's such a complex game we're living in that you can never have enough tips and tricks, right? So, yep, yep, yep. yeah, sounds great. Anyway, I'd love to have you back for your second book. Okay, in the future, if you game. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Uh, I know you have to run. So great, Riz. Okay. Thank you so much for your time and this super interesting conversation. Thanks for having me on today. It was a lot of fun. It was. I know we touched on many different topics, yep. uh, but there's always more to talk about. Yep, always. Okay, perfect. Until then, thanks a lot, man, for, for being a good sport. All right, well, thanks so much. It was a lot of fun. Mm. Thank you. I'll talk to you later. Okay, bye. Ciao. Ciao. And thanks again to Riz for coming on the forum and helping us understand these exciting ideas. I want to add uh, one more perspective to what we talked about. Now, if we go back to the idea that the consciousness permeating the universe, which is the prime factor in it, when that is immersing itself into a new universe, eventually they're immersing itself into another one and so on and so forth in what he called a nest of universes or immersed consciousness, you know, in stairs downwards. 
There is an interesting um, temporal consequence of this because, you know, when consciousness is focused into smaller and smaller bits, into microcosmoses, consciousness is so fantastic that it can perceive everything there in the same kind of sequence or time experience as if it's bigger, if it's zoomed out. You know, when a fly, when you're going to smack a fly, why is he sitting there waiting until the moment before you reach him and then he moves away? It's because he has all the time in the world. Because to him, you are but a sluggish, slow giant, <laughs> completely outmatched by the fly's speed. In fact, if you really want to trick a fly, you have to be very slow when you approach him. It's like we don't notice that the Earth is spinning or that the Sun or the other planets are moving. We can't see it with our eye. But if we expand our consciousness to that level, then it will move faster. And if we zoom in the consciousness on a fly level or even beyond, then everything at this level where you begin will go much slower. And what seems to be fast in the small things are now at a normal pace. You can experience this as meditations where the mind is expanded and zoomed out. And meditation where the mind is hyper-focused and zoomed in will have two different time distortions. In one, time will go slower. and In another, it will go faster. So when you come back to this level, you will be amazed that, oh, that much time went, or oh, that little time went. Now, where am I getting at? It's to do with eternity. So let's say you, as a human being, have eight years to live. Now, if you zoom yourself, immerse yourself into a lower world, you can double or triple that experience if we truly could get to a matrix-like level where we forget about the outer world and we fully function within this world, this artificial world. And like the example from Rick and Morty, 50 minutes may go by and a lifetime in there. Now, if that happens again and again for every level, you enter a new virtual reality in the already created one. It's like remembering the movie Inception. It's the same principle. In fact, this is a definition of eternity. This is a definition of eternity. Now, if you if you do a Buddha, or an, actually any avatar, he's just the most known, and you pull out back back out of there, then you wake up to this world. If you pull back up out again, you woke up to the next, etc., etc., until finally you merge back with the source. Now, some are tired of existence and would totally do that. Because every level you wake up to is immense bliss and liberation feeling compared to where you were at. So, it would feel like uh, coming home. But for those who are completely into the game and still think it's fun and, and are enjoying the ride, may choose to extend themselves further. But hey then you can't complain because you're a part of the ruling laws at the level you're operating at. And like I said in the beginning of the show, I don't think we are actually literally in a computer game. But I do think it's quite possible that we are in some kind of quote-unquote artificial generated reality which is unreal compared to where we come from. And us creating artificial realities is just a parallel to that. 
And when Riz adds the brilliant observation about role-playing games and non-player games, I already forgot the terminology, <laughs> but one with the consciousness of organic beings are immersed, plus AI, and another where there's just AIs, you know, the materialist model, then um, I reiterate my third possibility, and that's that, yeah, we can create simulated universes, but when we create vehicles to, to harbor consciousnesses, real consciousness may manifest there. Um, in fact, we may create life, quote-unquote, inside here, without even knowing it. So, so that would be a different possibility from our consciousness being immersed in. It's still consciousness. Consciousness is consciousness, whether it's a fly or a sun. But there is a difference in creating avatars where we project our consciousness, which are tied to our bodies, into those new avatars. Or if we create avatars that can contain either AI or natural consciousness. Food for thought. Hmm? Before we part, let me share a great, great news with you. For the first time, we finally have a newsletter. Now, don't worry, you're only going to get it maybe once a month, sometimes twice a month, maybe at super rare occasions, even more frequent. But basically, it's going to be every second week, I think. And um, we also have a Telegram channel for more live news. So let's say a new show is out, immediately it will be updated to the Telegram channel. Whereas you will be notified on it from the newsletter when that comes out, but that may not be the same day as the show is out. And so we will cease announcing new shows on social media. We've done that so far, and you've been relying on it, but from now on it's going to be primarily the news mail and the Telegram channel. So sign up to it if you want to stay in the loop, because one day we'll be gone. Bam. And you may catch yourself wondering at some later point, hmm, where did Forum Borealis go? Nobody will keep you in the loop unless you keep yourself there. So um, if you do yourself that favor, you'll not be spammed, of course. In fact, I wish we could <laughs> do more, do faster, more frequent. But when it happens, you'll know. So uh, to sign up, go to our website, forumborealis.net. And I suppose I should also add uh, RISWORKS website. We've totally forgot to mention it in the show, which is zenentrepreneur.com. Zenentrepreneur.com. Now, it's a tricky spelling maybe for some, but I suppose if you just Google website RISWORK, you'll, you'll find it. Okay, that's it. Sign up to our newsmail. Thanks for staying with us and for your invaluable support. As ever, I've been your host, Al. And whatever you do, never forget it. There is no spoon. Be seeing you.
number one, 